VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, October the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call in the queue and on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So obviously, big thanks to Linda Swain for sitting in for me for a couple of days. Apologize if my voice is a bit raspy and a little bit broken up here this morning, but c'est la vie. All right, good start to the ECHL season for the Newfoundland Growlers. Three-game sweep at Mary Brown Center, beating the Reading Royals, including a 2-1 overtime victory in game number three. The South Carolina Stingrays come to town beginning their three games at tomorrow. First time South Carolina's ever been in town, so that'll be exciting for the Growlers fans. And Jackson Perizowski, leading scorer in the league, and he was the ECHL Player of the Week in week number one. Way to go, kid. All right, so as you heard Brian Medora say in the VOCM newscast, who'd have thunk it? The Texas Rangers and the Arizona D-backs, the Diamondbacks in the World Series, certainly off everybody's radar, or most people's radar, certainly off mine. And, you know, you think about some of the big sports moments and the big goals or the big hits or the home runs, like Joe Carter to win the World Series for the Toronto Blue Jays. Sometimes it comes down to a defensive error, and this is one of the most famous plays in Major League Baseball playoff history. On this date in 1986, in the World Series between the Boston Red Sox and the New York Metropolitans, it was the slow roller to Billy Buckner. So to set the stage, the Red Sox were one strike away from winning the World Series, right? This in game number six. So the heavily favored uh, Red Sox up against it. The crowd is ready to cheer on a, a Red Sox World Series championship. So here we go to the 10th inning. Uh, reliever for the Red Sox, a guy named Calvin Chiraldi. He came in after they uh, knocked down uh, Wally Back and Keith Hernandez. Chiraldi comes in, gives up three singles in a row. Gary Carter, Kevin Mitchell, and Ray Knight. 5-4 runners on first and third. Here comes Mookie Wilson. It was a 10-pitch at-bat. And the curious thing about this play, look, Billy Buckner was a very sure-handed first baseman throughout his career, but he was hurting throughout the entire series. And they didn't bring in Dave Stapleton to replace Buckner like they'd done in the past in the series. So Mookie Wilson on the 10th pitch hits a little slow dribbler right to Buckner between his legs. The Mets go on to win, and then they win in Game 7. Still remains the only team a strike away from losing the World Series to go on in win the World Series, so pretty famous play. Okay, so I understand one of the big conversations over the last couple of days was issues regarding services in rural Canada, services in rural Newfoundland and Labrador, notably banking. Okay, unfortunately, this was only a matter of time. So when we look what happened in Lassie or Ragnar Bayard Arm or on Fogo Island with Scotiabank closing its doors, now another seven apparently on the chopping block, whether it be in Whitburn, Deer Lake, Twillingate, Lewisport, Burgio, Flowers Cove, Grand Bank. So people are looking to politicians, including Andrew Parsons and or Premier Fury, about what they can do in their role in keeping services and banking alive in rural parts of the province. The short answer is they probably have very little clout. So for operations like banks, I mean, it's quite clear. It's profit over people. It's as simple as that. Now, the move towards online banking is very, very obvious, and most people do it, but not everybody does it. So whether it be some, and I hate to say, you know, seniors don't use online banking because they absolutely do, but not all do. So you get used to going to the bank. Some people really like to deal with the teller as opposed to sit on their couch with their iPad or go to the ATM machine. So this is absolutely a question of profit, right? It's just simple as that. 
If they were making big money in small uh, rural parts of the country, they'd stay. But of course, they're not, so they leave. It's the teller services that people will miss. But the big profits at the banks are the other products and services that they offer. So absolutely a shame to see banks going by the wayside in so many smaller parts of the country, and certainly here in this province. And if you want to take it on, we can 100% do it. A lot of this boils back to a report. We've talked about the Competition Bureau many times on this program, but it's identified in a pretty wide-reaching comprehensive report looking at the competitive landscape of the country between 2000 and 2020. We've seen prices marked up, profits increase, mostly because certainly there's the air of you know, corporate greed, but a lot of it comes simply back to competition and the lack thereof. Canada has a competition problem along with a productivity problem. So whether you look at banking, groceries, telecom, air travel, the concentration inside the big heavy hitters is plain as the nose on your face. So we see it happening. So the question is, what can anyone do about it? What can the federal government do about it? Certainly in air travel, opening up the skies, reducing the amount of uh, domestic ownership required to open up an airline and to really legitimately compete with the only big two, right? There's only two, WestJet and Air Canada. In the world of groceries, it's concentrated 80, 80% of the retail in the hands of five. And of course, they not only have the shelf space, they have a distinct control of the distribution network as well. So in the world of telecom, it's a business that the federal government and the Competition Bureau have allowed. It's the merger of some of the biggest players to further concentrate the problem. So yes, we have a competitive problem, and yes, we have a productivity problem. And people will rightfully chime in about the loss of the bank, and if you want to bring it forward, we can do it. I heard the Premier ask of Scotiabank in particular whether or not these are going to be permanent closures. Well, number one, you don't know what you got till it's gone, and number two, when something closes or goes away, it's hard to envision it coming back. So I know people in the living in rural parts of the province who are losing things like banks will chime in on this. Let me throw this out there. Is this an opportunity for the credit unions? Maybe. Is this also an opportunity where we've seen the post office go away in smaller parts of the country and the province? Is it an opportunity to revisit post office banking? Maybe. You know, there are solutions out there. I don't know if they can be driven necessarily by governments or individual politicians, but on the front of Canada Post, there's absolutely, as their role as a crown corporation, an opportunity to see whether or not post office banking can be the go-to or the replacement for some of these institutions that are going away, like Scotiabank in so many parts of the province and the country. Because it's happening around the country, and it's not great at all. Obviously, you want to take it on? Let's go. I need a sip of water. One moment. And we're back. Or then you look at other services in rural. The government, the provincial government, is getting set to announce expansion of virtual care. Okay. Some of this is also predictable and not great if you live in a smaller part, a smaller community. Access to health care is certainly a bigger deal than access to a bank, not to belittle one or the other, but, you know, the expansion of virtual care, this is coming. The questions will be, who's the private company offering it? And how much does it cost? And will there be the removal of the cap on the number of virtual appointments a doctor is able to adhere to during the course of one day? So apparently they're talking 24-7. Doctors during the day, nurse practitioners in the evening, I think it is. got to read more about it because just, I just heard it announced this morning. So it's another example of the changing landscape of the provision of services, some by the private sector, some by the government. So anyway, you want to take it on? We can do it. All right. 
So the province's Auditor General, Denise Sanran, does terrific work, her and her team, at the Auditor General's office. Every time she look, takes a peek under the covers or behind the scenes or removes the cloaks of se- uh, secrecy, we find out a lot of scathing, unfortunate, and unacceptable things. This one, of course, is about the operations, efficiencies, spending, and a variety of other matters at Memorial University. Number one, the Faculty Association and the Students' Union. I'm sure the echo in their offices is, we told you so. We told you so. So let's dig into a couple of things. First off, I hearken back to 2005. Then the president of the Royal Mint of Canada, a fellow named David Charles Dingwall. He was a cabinet minister, went on in 2003 to be appointed to that position of president and CEO at the Mint. He came under heavy fire for a bunch of excessive expense claims that he put forward. Then testifying in front of Parliament, he went on to say, talking about his severance package, and it has wrong, no, no true words have ever been spoken. Mr. Dingwall, talking about that, was said, I'm entitled to my entitlements. It was true then, and it's true today. When we have governments that provide core funding, whether it be to Memorial University or every agency, board, or corporation, enough is enough. I mean, there should be line by line, just like in the estimates. You know, you can read the budget document and the speech from the throne or the budget speech. The real devil in the details is found in the estimates. So while we go through, say, the Department of Health Community Services, $4 billion, okay, there it goes. It's about time to identify redundancies and waste that it's a line by line. Suppose in the House of, the House of uh, the, pardon me, the legislature has to sit every single day for two or three months leading up to a budget. Let's dig in and do the hard work. Whether that be special committees set aside to do exactly that, there is a group that looks at estimates and there is some debate, but we don't see it. We don't hear it. And look no further, whether we go to NALCOR or you go to the former school district, and yes, now Memorial University. Couple of things. <laughs> Man, some of this stuff. So, looking at oversight, job descriptions, and accountability. The short answer to those questions, where are they? They're not there. They're simply non-existent for the most part. You know, I heard someone refer to this as an ad hocracy. If you don't have tight guidelines on how money is spent, where it's spent, what do you think is going to happen? People will be entitled to their entitlements. It's easy enough, and I understand why people will hang this on former President Vian Timmons, but this is decades old. This is not new, but the revelation is clear. Interim President Neil Bose is saying that they have accepted all the re- eight recommendations and they'll try to do better and to try to clamp down on this. The problem is, the Board of Regents has long had the authority to do better on this front. So while the Students' Union and others bemoan the withdrawal of $68 million, that $68 million is probably very easily found if we wanted to take the time to do exactly that. Let's look at some of the issues regarding the administrative cost per student. Okay, highest administrative salaries per student in Canada, $2,369 per student. Next closest university, administrative cost, 1994 is the average for all universities when compared. So, obviously, something completely out of control. Compensation policies, the the Auditor General says, either outdated or non-existent. Higher compensation to 90% of surveyed employees in executive management positions. So, comparatively, $143,000 difference between the salary of a campus vice president compared to an assistant deputy minister in the government. 
add to that 36 positions sampled. 97% don't have a job description. I mean, you talk about these big organizations and the organizational chart, the hierarchy, who answers to who and who does what. So if there's a variety of senior management don't have a job description, you can bet your bottom dollar that there is distinct redundancies in who does what. Even if you look at communications, it's supposed to be handled through the responsibility of the Vice President of Advancement and External Relations. But 14 senior communications positions are reported in other vice presidential portfolios. No one's cheering for anyone to lose their job, but between the amount of pay associated with the senior positions and the number of senior positions and the lack of job descriptions, the lack of oversight and monitoring, we've got ourselves a problem. You can look at uh, Dr. Timmons and talk about $2,700 for a desk and a chair and how much it costs to stay in a hotel when you go over to Harlow to visit Mons Campus there. That's all fine and dandy. We can talk about the unnecessary money spent by all levels of government, including arm's-length institutions like Mon, for consultants and headhunters to find the next replacement for Vian Timmons as the permanent president of the university. So I guess we'll try to get uh, Miss Hanrahan on, who's terrific, right? The team does very deep-dive comprehensive work, but everywhere, everywhere you look, there are glaring examples of just an outlandish amount of money being spent, and sometimes on who knows what. So, and again, it's not just Mon. It simply isn't. It's one thing to evaluate what a required budget is to operate for any agency, board, or corporation. But please, to all 40 members and the senior leadership at all the ABCs and at Memorial University and everywhere else that gets taxpayer core funding, it's time to cut it out. Cut the fat. Drain the bloat. How much money do we talk about that is in need in other areas of government? So people will complain that we don't do enough to talk about how we fund X, Y, and Z. You know, expansion of healthcare, housing concerns. It's not about how much we spend necessarily. It is about how much we borrow. It's not necessarily about how much we spend. It's how we spend it and where we spend it. A budget of $9 billion to govern a province of this geographical size and with the population base is outrageous. Yes, there are needs. And people say, well, you know, socialism, we're going to run out of other people's money. It's becoming clearer and clearer as the days, the weeks, the months, and the years roll by that there is money to be saved in certain arenas to be funneled to areas of concern. Look no further than every report that the Auditor General in particular has brought forward in the recent past. So good work to Ms. Hanrahan and her team, and if you want to take it on. Let's do exactly that. Okay. So the Premier's being taken to task somewhat by the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem. Right? Premier Fury has written a second letter, not telling the Bank of Canada what to do, but painting a picture of the reality of life and what the increase and the sharp and repeated increases of the benchmark interest rate has meant to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Yes, we need politicians to stay out of the Bank of Canada. You know, they should be left to their own devices, even though there's been distinct thoughts, criticisms, pointing to some either lackluster leadership and or potential incompetence and or feet dragging. And some of this, you know, I get where Tiff Macklem's coming from, but at the same time, sir, it kind of feels like ducking criticism. And the criticism is realistic and I think is deserved. So, yes, I don't pretend to have the financial chops to be able to evaluate monetary policy and monetary policy decisions, but I'm living it, right? And now, yes, hindsight is a pretty valuable tool at 2020, but I'm living it. So questioning how the bank proceeds, probably politicians should stay out of it. 
painting a picture because I guarantee you, from Mr. Macklem's ivory tower, he's not feeling the pinch like me and you, Dave Williams, and everyone listening to this program. Well, I guess there's a few muckety mucks listening, but and welcome to the show. All right. Uh, how are we doing out there, Dave? I want to get through a couple of quickies here. Congratulations to Bev Moore Davis, her husband, and others who are working on the body safety program to see that it moves beyond a pilot project and gets quickly, as quickly as possible, implemented into all the K-9 schools in the province. It's important. You know, even when the law enforcement agencies tell us that sometimes investigations are quite difficult because children don't even understand the phrases used, the, the terminology, to be able to be helpful and to recognize the warning signs, where the red flags are, where to turn when you hear it. So kids in the know, National Education Safety Education Program will be expanded throughout the entirety of K-9 in the next two years. Good decision. Bravo to all of the advocates who pushed as they did. All right, uh, I wanted to get through a couple of quick ones. And we can talk about, you know, Uber coming to town, how it's going to work, protections for the workers. The province will be in charge of all the legislation associated with ride-sharing companies. That only makes sense because I could book a ride-share in Uber in St. John's and be dropped off in Paradise, right? So, yes, that's a provincial matter. Municipalities will still be in charge of the cabs. In jurisdictions where Uber, Lyft have come to town, there has obviously been a reduction in the uh, profits and the revenue for the cabs, the traditional cab companies. So, fine for the government to do away with testing, whether it be written test or road test for your Class 5 license holders. You know, you have to have it for two years and you have to have your abstract adjudicated to get a class four without going through those two particular tests. Fine. Protection for the workers. What does that look like? Access to workers' comp or EI and other protections that we all enjoy. So independent contractors and doing it when you want as an Uber driver is a good thing. But what will the landscape look like when compared to traditional cab companies? Some big questions that are yet to be fully understood. All right, just before we get... To your calls here this morning, while we look at the horrors of war in many parts of the world, including in Israel and Gaza, it was on this day in 1973, the Yom Kippur War between Israel and the Coalition of Arab States officially ended with a ceasefire, paved the way for a bunch of different peace processes like the 1978 Camp David Accords, led to the return of Sinai to Egypt and normalized relations. It was the first peaceful recognition of Israel by an Arab country, 1973. While we... Hear and see the finger pointing, and there's plenty of that to go around. While we understand the atrocities of potential crimes against humanity, war crimes, where's the off-road? So while the Israeli forces amass on the border of Gaza for a potential, and I would say inevitable, ground war, where's the off-ramps? Where's the road to peace? 1973, on this date, the Yom Kippur War comes to an end. Oh boy, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's have a great show. That means you join us live on the air. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Good morning, Frank. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's a lovely day. I guess I'd like to talk about the statute of limitations as it pertains to uh, survivors of uh, physical abuse, uh, particularly like Whitburn, Mount Cashel, Belvedere, all these things. Yeah. Um, Apparently, like, there was a guy there a little while back there driving around the city there with uh, with a jail cell uh, on the back of his truck, uh, you know, like a quite profound and moving uh, statement there. Uh, his name he, is Jack Whalen. Jack Whalen, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, a matter of fact, I uh, took a visit there into uh, the public galleries uh, on Monday into the uh, House of Assembly, 
and I thought I'd seen him there. I wasn't sure. But, uh, yeah, Pat, uh, unbelievable. Uh, you know, like the Statue of Limitations, uh, unfortunately, like it doesn't apply to, uh, you know, it applies to people like him, of course. Uh, but I wish it didn't. But uh, what I seen in the legislature there on Monday, uh, apparently it applies to, uh, like, leaders of the opposition and uh, the NDP uh uh, one lady there, uh, the uh, minister for Torngat Mountains, I believe it was, uh, Leila, Leila Evans, uh, she spoke uh, about his situation in there, and bang out. She got about two minutes, and she was uh, cut right down, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, the limitations uh, even applied there. But, I mean, like in this day and age of uh, uh, truth and reconciliation, uh, you know, like, my God, I mean, shouldn't the, uh, you know, the, I mean, the shameful government to the, uh, the liberals, uh, you know, like come come to uh, some sort of agreement with this man. And, and in, in, in the spirit of uh, truth and reconciliation in this day and age, uh, come to terms with this, as uh, like a lot of places did. Uh, I might be rambling on here a bit. Well, just but, let's set uh, the stage, because not everyone might know exactly what we're talking about. Many people probably do, though, because it's made a lot of headlines. And yes, Mr. Whalen sat in the uh, gallery at the House of Assembly, I believe, every day last week. So well, he was at the Whitburn Boys' home for a number of years, spent 730 days in solitary confinement. I mean, even at this day and age, in uh, correctional facilities across the country for adults, we're talking about solitary confinement being cruel and uh, inhumane. So, not supposed to even be doing it. The difference here, because you did mention uh, Mount Cashel. The statute of limitations issue that Leela Evans and others are talking about is that there's a difference between being a victim of physical, mental, or emotional abuse versus sexual abuse. And that all changed because of the Hughes inquiry and looking at Mount Cashel. So they removed sexual abuse from the statute of limitations, and consequently we've seen what that's meant through the courts for all these decades, and now there's going to be compensation afforded, mostly because of selling off properties of the Roman, uh, the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation. And now, for Mr. Whalen, the statute of limitations are clear for him. He had until his 21st birthday to come forward, or his 29th birthday if through therapy or counseling the, the abuse manifested itself the way it has for Mr. Whalen over the course of his life. So they're telling us, basically, that there's a big difference between sexual abuse, which is evil and heinous, and of course, but physical abuse can also bring forward trauma that is lifelong and life-altering. So that's the basic concern that Miss Evans and many, many others are speaking to because it doesn't seem fair. When the debate was cut so short, disgraceful. You know, yes, the big issues of the day, and many of them don't get the necessary attention they do, rejecting a debate about the cost of living, cutting that particular conversation or debate short, is not in the best interest of anybody, including Mr. Whalen. And apparently Mr. Whalen wasn't even educated uh, when he was uh, uh, in the Whitburn Institution. And uh, child offenders today, I mean, they have to uh, be educated uh, before they're released back or before they serve their terms or whatever have you. But, I mean, uh, I, I think he, like, he had like a, I don't know, an elementary school education when he was in there. I mean, you tell me now after uh, that guy got out of there, like he had uh, uh, the education now, like, or, you know, like – PTSD and all that stuff from uh, being in there and in solitary and, uh, you know, enjoying abuse and torture and all that stuff, uh, that he had uh, full capacities now, like, to, to bring something like this forward, uh, you know, to the government or to the lawyers. <laughs> I'd be a bag of hammers if I, uh, if I ever walked out of there under those conditions. He went into that cell with grade six and came out with grade six, you know, so the rest of his life had changed. And change yeah. for the obvious worst. There's only two provinces in the country that still have a statute of limitations for childhood physical abuse. Us in New Brunswick. 
Unbelievable, Patty. Uh, like I said, uh, you know, coming out of there with a grade six education and PTSD, I mean, uh, how, how, how is that even possible to bring anything forward? You know, uh, and like I said, in, in, t- in, in today's society, in this day and age of, of truth and reconciliation, I mean, I'm, I'm calling on the premier, the deputy premier and the justice minister. I mean, my God, reconcile with this man in the name of truth and reconciliation, you know, and yeah. not only him, I mean, everybody else behind him. Yeah, truth and reconciliation has pretty much been a, a term or a reference to indigenous relations, but I know exactly what you're talking about. So, you know, the story gets even more sad when it comes to Mr. Whalen. So his daughter, Brittany, went on to be a lawyer. She's actually representing uh, people like her father to try to see this rule, this uh, law change, the statute of limitations, her and Lynn Moore. Her name is Brittany. I think I already said that. So when growing up, she would ask Dad for some help with her homework and whatnot. And she had no idea why he would always resist and exactly what might be going on in between the ears and in the heart of her father. Eventually, at the age of 16, they told her. And now she went on to get her law degree and is working on things like her father's case, which is, you know, making something good out of something awful. So it's a big conversation. and It's it's due more time on the floor of the House of Assembly. We shouldn't be giving short shrift to these very dangerous conversations. To me, what it says is that the government is more worried or really worried about the amount of money they eventually have to pay in compensation for victims, as opposed to the compensation for sexual abuse victims, none past statute of limitations for those who have suffered childhood, physical, emotional, or mental abuse. It's really quite something, man. Absolutely, Patty. I wouldn't even doubt if they got lawyers on this now. I mean, the provincial government, uh, you know, trying to keep this legislation in place. Uh, you know, like, like I said, uh, no, I, I just uh, I can't imagine it. And like I said, when I was in the House of Assembly there, uh, there on Monday, I believe, and, uh, you know, and Layla Evans spoke, I mean, you know, I mean, I was right behind the, uh, the ministers there. And, you know, like laptops opened up the Facebook and the soccer games and everything else. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, this is where their attention is and everything else. It's it's, it's not what's going on there. And then... And what the people, uh, uh, you know, have brought forward about uh, something as disgraceful and as heinous as this, and and I believe like there's a like an online petition, uh, like I signed it, and uh, like uh, paper uh, uh, petitions going around, like from both provinces, from uh, from the people of New Brunswick as well, and I believe like there's thousands of signatures uh, on both of those things. And I mean, like I said, like head down on a laptop, you know, with Facebook and uh, a soccer game uh, going on, and but once Leah Levin spoke, uh, two minutes, you know, heads pop back up again. And, uh, you know, like their priority is, is, is definitely not with uh, Mr. Whalen's case or or in the case of uh, anything with the statute of limitations. So, like I said, I mean, it's it's, it's very shameful, I mean, what this uh, liberal government is doing here uh, with uh, Mr. Whalen's case and, and the people coming in behind him. I don't, I'm not so sure that we have our 40 elected officials sitting long enough in the House of Assembly, which I hear all the time. But the trick to that comment would be, you know, changing the way we do business. You know, changing the way the House operates, whether it be through a committee and or the veracity or the merit behind question period, which is generally very unhelpful. But, you know, digging into these important matters is exactly what you're elected to do. It's fine to take on high-profile stuff and, you know, some good news announcements and how much money's being spent and infrastructure announcements and a fire truck in every hall, those types of things. But it's the hard work. You know, like I mentioned off the top with the AG's report, 
we got to dig in here and find out line by line through every budget of every ABC, Mon included, how the money's being spent. We got to dig into these traumatic issues like statute of limitations. We got to figure out exactly what levers the government can pull in the housing issue. We got to figure out what government can do about cost of living. And I'm not saying they've got to, you know, some of this is a federal conversation, to be honest with you. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have more robust actual exchange of ideas as opposed to debate. Debate and politics, we understand how politics works. But people are struggling, and struggling mightily. So let's kind of change the tune. And I'm not talking about kumbaya and holding hands and smoking. Uh, well, forget it. I'm talking about m not only debate, but ideas. <laughs> There's a distinct short uh, shortcoming in ideas around here, as opposed to political rhetoric and one-upmanship and all that stuff, which is getting us nowhere. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Uh, you know, when... <laughs> a prominent person can go out there and spend $1,700 on chocolates and people can't even afford, like, groceries. Uh, <laughs> once again, I mean, that that's unbelievable. Uh, you know, uh, if, if that's the priorities of a, of, of a Mon president, well, good riddance, I'd say. Anyway, we, Pat, it's been wonderful talking to you this morning. I appreciate uh, your time. Bye-bye, <laughs> sir. Thanks, Frank. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, got to get away from running specifically Memorial University, and I think there's a comment coming from John Harris, the Executive Director of External Affairs at Monsu. It's not a corporation. It's an institution of higher learning. And again, I will probably not be able to get this comment out of my head all day because it's the first thing I thought of when I read this particular report and the associated news stories. People feel like they're entitled to their entitlements. And until we rein in their entitlements, they will long feel the exact same way that David Dingwall felt. Let's take a break. When we come back, Terry's got an issue with the town of Portugal Coffs in Phillips. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Terry. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Penny. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. Okay. I'm calling you back now. I called you back. I called you on October the 5th, telling you about a difficult situation I was having with the town of Porto Cove, St. Phillips. And I CC'd you on an email that I sent back to the town on October the, 20, uh, October the 10th, uh, 23. And as of the day, you know, this is, this is the 25th now, I've got no response back from the, from the town. Remind me what the issue um, was, Terry, sorry. Basically what it was, like I said, uh, I'm having an issue with the resident that lives next door to me. They're using the road reservation in front of my house as like oh, yeah. a dumping ground. Uh, they're damming the ditch. They're deciding to plant trees, you know what I mean, in front of my house on the road reservation and all that. And for some reason, the town will not act like, you know, they go up and talk to the individual, but they're not, they don't seem to want to do anything else, you know what I mean? And I'm sort of, you know, dumbfounded how a town would let someone, when they, when they have, like, regulations in place, like the litter, garbage, and refuge regulation states that, you know what I mean, anyone, you know, putting stuff into a town thing would be fine. I mean, but for some reason, they don't want to do it. And also, they had to come up and they had to repair the road in front of the ditch at the taxpayer's dollar, not his dollar, on the taxpayer's dollar. And for some reason, I don't know why, they're letting this resident away with it. I'm not sure either. I mean, even if you're manipulating the way that the water would move through the ditch, 
you would think that that would be enough because water is the unstoppable force. It's going to go wherever it wants. If you reroute it, it's going to damage something, further damage your shoulder, damage the road, damage your lawn, damage your home. So I don't know why that alone isn't enough reason for them to get involved. And I don't know you. And so I'm sort of at a loss. So I don't know where else I can contact to, you know, mean to, to move this matter further because I guess I'm sort of at a standstill. I attend the council meetings and they tell me they give me a response and they come back and all they tell me, this is a civil matter. I said, how can it be a civil matter when this is not even my property? This is town property. So what I'm looking for is some some type of avenue. I don't know if you can help me or your listeners, like I said, to where I can reach out to, to to go further with this. I don't know where it would land at the provincial level, to be honest with you, because they'll just simply tell you it's a municipal issue. So have you tried, like even the Department of Municipal Affairs, to get some guidance from them or transportation or works? Because if it comes down to a road-related matter where the road may be damaged by an individual's actions, maybe there's something they can do. I don't know. Have you tried either or? Yeah, but like I said, the municipal affairs worst thing is is try, trying to get the right person to talk to. Like you know, I don't know what department or where I would go to, uh, you know, file a complaint against the town or something, right? Yeah, well, I don't. I, I think if you start with the complaint, you'll absolutely have a devil of a time going with the right uh, up with the right person. But if you start with uh, looking, here's what I would do. So if you're listening at municipal affairs, just tune out for a second. Just ask them for some guidance. Because people like to feel like they've got the info that might, you know, give them that sense of satisfaction that they were able to settle or solve an issue at their day at work. So that's what I would do. Ask, call them, say, I'm looking for some guidance relating a water issue in the ditch out in front of my home in the community where I live. You never know. That might get you further than I'd like to file a complaint, of course, because no one wants to be on the other end of the phone uh, listening to a complaint all day, every day, although I do. So maybe that might be a way to get to speak with someone. All right, I'm going to have to try something, Lisa, because Lisa seem to be, you know, at a, at a loss here why they're, you know, not dealing with this. And I'd like to, you know, reach out, you know, to the CAO of the town or the mayor to call in to your show and basically try to explain to the presidents why they're why they're taking this type of action, right? Absolutely, we're trying to. We're happy to try to get involved here and get some answers. At least understand why they're not getting involved because it sounds like something. Because I should rightfully point out, if I throw some old grout somewhere else in the woods or wherever someone's going to take me to task i don't know why that's not the same thing here plus even since we talked i don't even understand the person who's doing it i don't know what's behind it like i don't get the motivation what are they trying to achieve here i guess by they're having an issue with me and you know i mean this is the way they're you know they're avenging this out type of thing right you know i mean this is their way of retaliation or something i'm you know that's only what my my guess is that they're trying to this person seems to me to be a very passive aggressive person so they're doing stuff indirectly, like, you know, I mean, they won't do anything on my property, but they're doing stuff in front of the property type of thing, right? Yeah, it's pretty strange and stuff. I guess that, I, and I guess that's why the town is taking the attitude this is a, a civil matter. But as I said, you know, I mean, if this was my property they were doing, then yes. But, I mean, this is town property. This is this is the issue I have, like I said, and town not dealing with this, you know, is, is bewildering to me. Get back to me, Terry, if you try to take that... Uh you know, the carrot versus the stick kind of conversation with municipal affairs and see if you can, if someone can give you a, like, a little bit of advice. If they, they give you something, send me an email or give me a call back, let me know what's shaking. All right, then. Thank you very much, buddy. Appreciate the time. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Yeah, it just kind of popped my head because if you call someone, I mean, it's just, you know, standard stuff. I'd like to complain. Well, then someone on the other end is going, oh, another complaint. As opposed to, maybe you can help. I need some guidance. I need some advice. Let me see if I can help you out, Terry. What's going on?
you know, da, 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 da. anyway. All right, let's talk a little titanium warfare. Line number three, the Rock Solid Dart Tournament coming back to the province uh, beginning November 5th out at Marble Mountain. They got five stops on this particular tour. Join us on line number three is Warren Power to tell us all about it. Good morning, Warren. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How you doing? Best kind. How about you? Not too bad. Not too bad. So, uh, yeah, we just wanted to promote uh, the tour starts next Sunday. So we just wanted to get the word out to try and get some more tickets sold before it, you know, finally happens for the first time in, in history of North America, if I'm not mistaken, something of this magnitude. So uh, I figured you'd be a good avenue to try and promote it for us. 100%. You know, I got a bunch of buddies that play in dart leagues and, you know, virtually every basement in the province has got a dart board. It's super popular. I know the Premier League viewership in this province is out of this world so people love the darts so tell us about what's going on and then we'll dig into a couple of the players that are coming because you've got some real pros on the list so let's get into the where the what people are going to see opportunity to meet the players that kind of stuff so brief summary will be uh, starts on the 5th in Marble Mountain and uh, it goes the 6th to Gander at Albatross Hotel 7th will be Marystown at Marystown Hotel 8th and 9th is going to be at the uh, Capitol in St. John. Uh, each each uh, each location will have two shows: a day show where people can come in, meet the players, get autographs, play against them, and so on. And then the night show will be like exactly like the Premier League format, if anybody's familiar. So it'll start off with eight guys, uh, race to six, and then it'll go to semifinals, race to six, finals, race to six. And there'll be shirts for sale and fifty-fifty, uh, and all that. You know what comes with any other event. But uh, personnel-wise, we got. We got two local players, uh, Jake Taylor, who's very highly ranked on the CDC, which is the Championship Dart Circuit, which essentially is the league under the PDC for North America. He's going to be there. He's from Forrester's Point, which is on Northern Peninsula. And Albert Anstey, who was at one point ranked 11 in the world back in the 90s, and he's a Canadian champion. He's playing. He's coming out of retirement. <clears throat> excuse me, to play singles again. Finally, that's pretty cool. Yeah, there's two Canadian PDC holders only, Jeff Smith and Matt Hamill. Jeff's from New Brunswick, Matt's from Ontario. Both of them are coming. But the main, the main guy we got coming is Andrew Gilding. He's ranked number 19 in the world right now, and he's reigning UK Open champion, which is one of the bigger PDC majors. So he, he's from England. He's, uh, he's the biggest name that'll be, that'll be coming. If I remember correctly, looking back at your email, I think Darren Webster's coming too, isn't he? Darren Webster's coming, yeah. That's pretty big names. I know who Gilding is. Darren got a profile-like resume, you know, quarterfinals in the world, quarterfinals at the Grand Slam and stuff like that. But uh, right now, Gilding is the highest ranked. He, he, he'd be number 19. He went from 23 to 19 uh, a couple of weeks ago when he finished in the quarterfinals at the Grand Prix, right? I think it's pretty great. So is it a, what about tickets and stuff? How do I get involved? Do I have to buy a ticket for the meet and greet, or is that an all-commerce, or what is it, how does it work? All the tickets are on Eventbrite, and they're separated between day show and night show. Day show is to play the guys, get their autograph, talk to them. More, you know, uh, not as formal. The night show, there's there's a few options for the night show. There would be a VIP table, which gets you also a meet and greet, which a lot of businesses are buying tables so they can fill the whole table themselves, which is eight seats. And at the, in the VIP part, you got you got a waitress, right? So the only time you got to get up is to use the washroom. So you, if you want something to eat or if you want a beer, they'll come to your table and ask you what to eat. Next to that, there's, there's normal tables, which you don't have a waitress, and you're a little bit further away, and you got to get up and go to the bar yourself. 
they're they're a little bit cheaper, but you can also buy individual seats at these tables. Like if you, if you just you and your wife or or, or you and your uh, sister or brother or whatever want to go to to watch it, all you got to do is uh, just buy two seats, so you don't have to buy a whole table, right? It sounds like a great night out, to be honest with you. So you're obviously a dart player. Yeah, I've played darts since I was eight years old, and uh, I got out of it for a few years, but last three or four years I've been heavily back into it, and uh, I just got uh, on the executive for Darts in L actually this this past year, so I'm on there for a three-year term now. So I, like, I, I love darts, and I wanted to bring it to the province because I've been to England and watched, watched darts, and I've been to New York to watch the U.S. Masters, and I was like, you know, be a good idea to bring something like that to Newfoundland because darts is so big here for a sparsely populated place. So this this is where this idea started. Now it's it's coming into uh, reality. Uh, you know, it, it sounds funny to say, but I firmly believe it. Darts is really well produced television. It's pretty exciting to watch darts on TV. And so you say you went to England. Did you go like to the Alley Pally, for instance? No, I went to Grand Slam, which is one of the majors, but it's not. The Alley Pally would be the World Championship. Yep. So last November. Myself and Albert Anstey and Albert Anstey's son, who's also named Albert Anstey, we uh, we went to Wolverhampton and watched uh, watched the week at the Grand Slam. That's when Michael Smith won his first major, so we we were there for that. Bully boy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I I do appreciate the darts. I have to say, and the Alley Pally, of course, is the real temple of darts in the UK. Uh, I've been oh, yeah. to darts. I went to uh, in Dublin at the Vicar which is a theater, but it was darts in town. And I tell you what, not only is it well-produced on television, but the crowds are, are cracked. I mean, they really are dressed up in costume and the cheers and the chants. And my God, if someone hits a 180 or God forbid, a nine dart finish or something, the place explodes. It's amazing to watch. Yeah. We've seen Josh Rock have a nine darter against Michael Van Gerwen and the place nearly blew up in Wolverhampton last, last November. Amazing stuff. I, I mean, I can't get over how good these guys are. But I suppose if you throw a thousand darts every day or more, whatever, however many they throw, inevitably the muscle memory kicks in at some point. So, Warren, are you any good? I'm not as good as I used to be. I was Canadian Ute double champion in 2000. Oh, cool. And back then I had like 24, 25 average, but now I'm only shooting 18 or 19. It's just more of love of the game now than being, being that good at it. It's still pretty impressive average. Getting anywhere in the low mid-20s is pretty wild stuff. Warren, uh, good luck with the tournament. Uh, congratulations for bringing it to town or bringing it to the province. So November 5th at Marble Mountain, of course, in Steadybrook. November 6th, they're at the Albatross Hotel in Gander. November 17th, Marystown Hotel and the Conference Center. November 8th is World Cup Night at the Capitol Hotel here in town. Same with November 9th here at the Capitol once again. Good luck. 1 to 4 p.m. is the meet and greet. A chance to actually play against the lads, which is pretty cool. Throw some arrows against the likes of Gilding or Webster or Albert Anstey, that'd be great. And then at night is the, of course, eight-player draw, first to six, the race to six, and from 7 to 10 p.m. Good to have you on. Good luck with it. Yeah, and I'll take it there on Eventbrite. So you just Google Rock Solid Dart Tour Eventbrite, and uh, you can just pick your show from there, and it'll, it'll bring you right to it. Fantastic. Good man. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate the time. No problem, Warren. All the best. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Nine darts against Van Gerwen, of course, long-time world number one. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of show for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Where would you like me to go here, David? Uh, I'll go to line number four. Morning, Bob. You're on the air. Morning, Bob. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind today, Bob? Uh, Same thing I had on my mind the last time I called. I was wondering, what can Premier Fury do about uh, bank closures? It's a fair question, but to be honest with you, Bob, 
I don't think there's a whole lot he can do. Yeah, well, and to the point that I tried to make the last time and making it, trying to make again now, you know, he can voice the people's concerns, but uh, he can't control someone's right to maintain a profit. And that's the whole thing is going on in uh, society now. Everyone is trying to uh, adjust to the high cost of living, and they're being vilified for doing it. And it's the economy that's the problem, not the... Not the, ba- uh, the landlords or the banks or the supermarkets. And you mentioned competition. Not competition either is not the problem. Well, it's funny how the competition bureau thinks it is. It's certainly part of it. And, you know, you talk about the economy and, you know, it'll be a capitalist decision. It's not like the banks are suffering, Bob. The banks are thriving, making record profits. Oh, you're wrong there too, Patty. Oh, I see. Banks aren't doing well. Okay, and I'll explain. The banks, uh, when the interest rates went up, the banks, uh, uh, you know, did really well on that. But look, all the foreclosures they got because of the interest rates going up. So the whole thing goes through the economy and balances out. You can raise a minimum wage, but the cost of living erases that. You know, people don't seem to get it. They're so noble about... uh, uh, leave it in the ground, the oil. But the production of oil and the lowering of carbon tax to encourage it is, you know, the, 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 the Trudeau got control over the economy by doing, making those moves, lowering the carbon tax and encouraging oil. I don't know if he discouraged uh, uh, Ecuador, but it, I mean, he could phone him up and try to encourage him to get some produce, some oil. I, I'll never be able to understand that one, to be honest. The federal government says go ahead, and they decide not to. I mean, you just said it in one breath that the government can't tell the private companies what to do when they're talking about profit and margins or what have you, and then in the next breath telling me that after a green light from the federal government that Trudeau should tell the oil company what to do. I never said he'd tell them what or what to do. He can, he can try to encourage them. Uh, uh, the carbon tax is a discouragement for oil. That's what it's designed for, isn't it? No, the carbon tax is basically an individual behavioral issue as opposed to the oil companies. And again, the oil industry in this country is the furthest thing from dead. They're looking at a 10% increase in production this year, making us the fourth largest oil producer in the world. Last year, record production, record revenue, record profit. I just don't understand how people think the oil industry is suffering in any capacity in this country because it's simply not. The amount of money in mergers in the oil sands in the last 12 months is staggering. Billions and billions and billions of dollars, so, I don't know. That, that makes it all the worse, what I'm trying to point out. West Newfoundland, I hear you saying that a lot lately. West Newfoundland going to get out of it? I, I think that's a fair question. Do you? What? Do you think that's a fair question? What are we going to get? Yeah, what are, what are we going to get out of uh, oil, you know? Uh, you know, the, you don't gain any by uh, cancelling out Newfoundland's oil, uh, someone else fills the gap. I mean, it's awful hypocritical that people call in and complain about bank closures when, when we've created the problem ourselves as the economy. The banks are not doing that to make. Uh, uh, why the why the supermarkets and the banks and the, and and the tenants and the landlords all getting greedy all of a sudden? Does that make sense to you? I'm not sure what you mean between landlords and banks. Uh, 
<laughs> completely oh, different animals. They all raise in their rates. They have a model. They're the, ones that, they're the ones that are being vilified the most, aren't they? Scotiabank, the big banks in this country, they have a business model. If a location isn't satisfying their model and their revenue stream, their profitability, they yank it. That's it. It's as simple as that. It's not what community it's in. It's not how many people come to visit the teller to pay their bills. It's whether or not their model of profit is working. They make the most money on other products and services, not with people's savings account or people's checkings account or their mortgages. They make their big money in the other products and offerings. If they're not getting that coming through the doors in a smaller town in Canada, then they close the shop. That's it. Well, the gro- groceries have gone up and uh, people can't afford them. Uh, so they stopped buying. So what did the supermarkets do then? They lessened the product, uh, the amount of the product, the quality of the product, and they upped the cost. They cut down on the package, you know, the size of the package and the weight. It all goes to, the, you know, when they raise the interest rates, it goes through the whole economy, Patty. And everybody got to scramble. You know, there's a, a, an awful lot of closures uh, of... Uh, restaurants lately and people trying to maintain their business what do you think is causing it because they got greedy or is it because the economy well, uh, restaurants? The economy is a culprit, is it not? Yeah, I suppose, but you're, you're making connections across things that really aren't in the same sentence or paragraph people, you know, your budget for dining out is different than your budget to eat at home, right? So, and in the world of grocery stores their profits are up. Their revenue is up. People haven't stopped buying groceries. Just people are trying to save where uh, where it's all possible. And some of that comes on to things like people will call it your entertainment budget. If you are unable to eat out because the grocery prices are rising, then there are different things. You know, people don't need to eat out, but people need to eat. How can you say uh, the grocery profits are up when they got to make all those adjustments? Grocery, look, Bob, it's not me telling you. These yeah, are audited companies, the, right? These are publicly traded companies. What? They're publicly traded companies. They're, it's there for all to see. They've testified in front of the Canadian Parliament. Their uh, profits are up, their margins are thin, but the profits are up and the revenues are up. They're not losing anything here. Well, why would they go to all those drastic moves to cut down the packaging and and uh, the quality and, and the amount of the product? And but that wouldn't be the grocery stores. That would be the people making the product. Right? Yeah, right? But, well, they're all part of the economy, aren't they? Their prices go up. I mean, you know, uh, everything is, it depends on the economy. Gas prices here, are not, uh, when they go up, are, are ten, the highest point are $10 a, a gallon. Uh, in the States, they're $5 a gallon. So they're, they're double here, you know. Yeah, it's more like 7 around here, and a lot of that is tax, uh, no doubt about it. I wonder how we can get to the point where can the gov- can would the carbon tax do any good to uh, 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 help the economy like lowering the carbon tax and producing some oil? Would that help the economy? Uh, again, the oil is the benchmark for the whole thing, and we seem to be discouraging oil production, and it's not helping uh, the amount of oil that's on the market. If someone else fills the gap. So am I right or am I wrong about that? I think you're wrong about oil. Uh, And, I mean, just look no further than there's a company with vast experience in the deep sea, and they've got a project that's green-lit, but they can't make it work financially. And it's got nothing to do with the carbon tax. You know, their price tag at $16 billion, Equinor themselves, not me, not Premier Fury, not Andrew Parson, not anybody else, 
they see they they say they need to rejig how that project works so that they can make it manageable, profitable to the extent that they need. Because just like the banks, they have a business model. If they can't satisfy the model, they won't pull the trigger. Don't you think Trudeau's high on and and the environment or the you know trying to discourage it? Yeah, I mean Trudeau might be high on his own supply, but the fact of the matter, if we're just looking at this province and the one project that is ready to go, if the proponent would like to go, I don't know how anybody has anything to do with that beyond the company and their shareholders and their partners. I think they have like 60% stake in that particular oil field, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, BP has the other uh, equity stake in that oil field. I'm pretty sure that BP and ExxonMobil and Equinor and other big companies, if they have a green light to do something and if it makes sense to them, they'll do it. They don't care what the prime minister thinks. Do you, uh, do you think uh, Trudeau is high on uh, climate change? Yes, he is. He is, yeah. Trying to discourage oil production? Yeah, in some form, absolutely. Yeah. But in this province, there's a project which might have billions of barrels. I mean, it's not that long ago that Hibernia cleared one billion barrels. Out of Baden Ord, there might be three, five billion barrels. They say their break-evens at 35 bucks a barrel. We're, over, we're in the 90s now. So I'm a little surprised they haven't proceeded with what looks like to be an expensive oil field. But at this point, if, if you're talking down the road with whether or not any more uh, exploration will happen, and there's a couple of exploration projects ongoing right now, ExxonMobil is out there, but Equinor is different than things down the road. If they want to produce it, they have the green light to do it. And I guarantee you, they could not care less what the Prime Minister or Stephen Gibo or anyone else thinks about the Beta Nord project. They'll do it if they can make it work. They'll do it if it works to their business model. Oil fields down the road? Absolutely. Even the Minister of the Environment federally, Gibo, has said it's going to be harder to get approval. But that has very little to nothing to do with Beta Nord. It's got something to do with future applications, future exploration, future applications for uh, production. Right? never discouraged uh, the oil companies and I've been waiting periods and this period now of three what's going to happen in three years what that's a coincidence that we got a, a prime minister a so bullish on climate change and had no effect whatsoever on uh, on Ecuador I don't buy that uh, Patty okay you can buy whatever you see fit Bob that's is your money nor dime here this morning but, and, uh, I- but how do people here feel about uh, oil it's awfully hypocritical to call up and complain about the economy and complain about your banks close, closing. And you don't seem to care. You could say, leave it in the ground in the other place. So you, Some people actually think that, Bob. It's kind of stupid that you can't see that the oil production in this province would help. You know, it would help all the people, and it wouldn't uh, affect the economy. You can think and people are stupid, including me. Because you've got to have a balance of oil production right now to improve the economy. The econ- you've got to, rele- you got to okay, release Bob. oil to bring down the price. The, the, whatever production happens in Newfoundland and Labrador will not dictate one copper on the international volatile global commodity of oil. And that's my point. Okay. Uh, I appreciate the time, Bob. Thanks for the call. Okay. okay, off we go. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. uh, you know, uh, the province brought in over a billion dollars in oil-related revenues just on the royalty side. doesn't include the tax base and all the rest of it and the onshore supply. But anyway, if you want to take it on, uh, we can do whatever you want right after this. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. 
Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Dominic. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty, to you and all your listeners. I called you about a month ago about my roof leaking. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. And that uh, last that last wind we had there a week ago, I had a bed leak. So I called the contractor, and after a bit of arguing that, he said he'd be up and change out some of the shingles, which i never seen him. He never came back. Now, I wonder if your open line could uh, tell me what I can do. I went to a lawyer, and the lawyer told me that this could be in the court for years. And it could have cost me twice so much. Absolutely. Now, I'm 84 years old, and my balance is not the same now it used to be on top of step ladder, getting up and down the attic. And every time it rains, I have to get up and put a bit of gum on the on the shingle to try to stop it. So if you if your listeners could help me out, I'd be appreciated. Now, my fireplace, it was a stone, is all stuck onto the chip rock. Now, I'm afraid the chip rock is going to get wet and them stones going to start falling down. And if it do, it's going to hit somebody in the head or break someone's leg or something. So I appreciate if someone could help me. I think the last time we spoke, uh, you know, no doubt going through a lawyer will be a costly venture and there's no, no outcome that could be predicted. But, you know, I think I also said that to put this contractor on a list, you know, any customer complaint, whether it be contract or otherwise, can be formally filed with Service NL at the government department. I don't know if that's going to be worth your while, but I'd do it anyway just to have that particular contractor on record. So just so I understand, you called him, he said he'd come back and tend to it, and lo and behold, he didn't show his face again. No. And yeah. every time it rains, I would, like today, and I, I got to get up, up there again today and put some more tar on to try to stop it. But so, it's, it's nerve-wringing. Yeah, I'm sure it is, because once something gets wet, the expense to replace uh, a few shingles becomes a big, big deal, you know, whether it be insulation and your jip rock and otherwise. So it's a, it's a nuisance out there, you know, and then you've got a lot of contractors. I guarantee you at least twice a week I get an email about a contractor-related issue here. And, you know, they're in demand, and they're taking on big jobs or they're taking on too many jobs and they know in their heart that they can't satisfy them all. And so when something better with more money comes along, next thing you know, the half-done job sits half-done until they deal with it, you know, when they have a lull in the action, which is not great. On top of that, a lot of them are looking for, for some pretty hefty down payments, upfront payment, which is, I'd be hesitant to say the very least to do that unless we had one of these big, reputable contracting companies because there's a lot of fly-by-night action out there. But this is a big contractor. Oh, is it? Do you use uh, email by chance, Dominic? No, I don't, no. Anyone belong to you? Yeah. Able to do it? Ask him to send me an email with a bit more information, including the name of the contractor, and I'll have a look around. All right, thank you very much, Patty. No problem, Dominic. Stay in touch. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Sandra. You're on the air. Patty, I don't know if this is a call that you're going to expect this morning uh -oh. that's going to cause heartache or what. But anyways, uh, I felt like I've been put in, in a position to lose more dignity and be shamed more than I already have. What's before. happening? Uh, Craig Parity is who represents my dicks district. Oh, Bonavista, okay. 
Yes. Now, I know you know Craig very well. Craig has been tremendously good to me. He's tremendously tried to fight as much as he can within the house to see that help try to come my way, but more times than none to no avail. In saying that, I own my own home. I'm a single person. I'm 60 years old. My mother passed away March 18, 2022. Right from the time she passed away and drew her last breath, I've been going through sheer hell being tortured in my own home. Why? What's happening? What's happening is nothing. Patty, to be very blunt with you. I just want to understand what's going on, Sandra. So you say that Mr. Party is helping to bring the program to you. What program are we talking about? Well, he's trying to see if whether or not I can switch over from oil to electric because apparently social services is not providing enough money to me per month to put oil into my tank. The equivalent of what they uh, give me per month in two payments is $35.50 every two weeks, which adds up basically to $71. Basically, is condensation from off the hose dropping into your tank. Last winter, I was freezing only for the one-time offers that Chiffon Cody had been putting out happened to carry me through without basically dying in my own house. Now, in saying that, I've been left in my own filth. I'm suffering signs of malnutrition to the point that the tendons are actually sticking, protruding out of my neck, all six of them. I've got muscle wasting around my neck. I've got muscle wasting on my limbs where social services is not providing me enough money for food. And actually, my health care provider tried to put in for meals and wheels on me, for me, I mean, and uh, also uh, ensure to help bring back the nutrition to my body. I was approved for the insure, which I've been receiving uh, ever since the letter's been put in, January 23rd, 2023. There was actually a letter put even before that. And nobody through uh, Eastern Health nor through the government sees their way in providing me actual food to eat. They're expecting me to live off of just insure alone. And as you know, insure, you can only drink three bottles, up to three bottles per day. That has sugar in it. That also has a sugar tax on it. I don't buy it. They've been sending it to me from that point on right up until this day. I was denied Meals on Wheels to go with that, and I'm unable to cook because I have blackouts. Blackouts, uh, I didn't know what was causing them until I had a CT scan done. Apparently, it was from a hard blow to the head, which I had received in my early childhood years, where I, I had a severe concussion. 
and it started causing me problems they said it should have caused from that point of the blow now in saying that I need further diagnostics to be done in order to find out whether or not it's capable for me even to have surgery because I need surgery done as soon as possible. My mother died with cancer basically right through her body. So you're waiting for the doctor or doctors to tell you whether or not a procedure is possible or required? Is that what you just told me? No, I need the surgery done as soon as possible because I have a cyst on my right side, which is not as much of a problem, but on the left side on my ovary, there's a cyst that's gone basically berserk. And they're referring to it now as the mass. It's unknown whether it's cancer or not until it's actually removed and to be tested. I have actually been trying through social services and even through the government to get attention brought for private taxi. Because of my blackouts, I can't ride on the public taxi because I pose a problem in other people getting to their destinations. Because sometimes, Patty, I have blackouts three or four times a day. And when I wake up from them at times, I'm unsure if I'm going to have mobility issues or not. Sandra, far far be it for me to say, but do you think you've arrived at a point where you need some more permanent care, whether it be in a care home or something, so you can get attention that is right there in front of you as opposed to all the aggravation that you're facing today? And I'm not trying to insinuate or imply that you should, but have you considered that? Do you think that's an option for you? Well, see, Patty, I'm going to tell you, I haven't been able to live a life yet because I guess we'll say my parents had a a lot of love for me. They taught me right from wrong and instilled good values in me. I actually helped my mother looked after my father until he died in 1992. I was 29 when he died. So I looked after my dad when my mom worked because they couldn't afford home care. And when my mom got cancer, she had actually cancer the first time, went into remission. That was in 2014. And then it reoccurred then later in 2021. And unknowingly to her and myself, we went through uh, a tremendous trial with both hospital and with family. Things were done that it's a story on its own that I really don't want to get into on phone. But uh, in saying that, I wanted to be able to live a life in my own home after my mom passed away. And my mom, uh, in knowing I did have health issues, but the health issues can be basically looked after if I can get the rights of my way to get me to get my diagnostics done. I've been trying ever since May uh, after she died in March to properly get my diagnostics done, but to no avail, it keeps going around in circles. 
and ends up in Craig's hands and back into the house, which goes around in a circle again. Well, I, you know one yeah. thing, Sandra, what I can do is that I can help line you up with some food, for instance. That's something that we can do. And there's groups out there, even close by where you live, who will be able to help on that front. That won't do anything for your medical issues necessarily, although some nutritious food can't hurt, obviously. So if you like, uh, I can help set you up with some groups out there. There's a couple that I know personally that are in operation around the province. There's a really, really helpful and generous group on Facebook called uh, Neighbors in Need. Uh, if you go through them, you'll probably be able to come I, up I'm with some help. I'm going to tell you something first thing, Patty. Okay. I have no uh, computer. I'm computer illiterate. I don't even know how to use a phone in the proper way to uh, uh, get things. But anyways... Sandra, just before I do have to go, how about this? I'll put you on hold. You share some personal contact information with Dave. I'll put it on to these people, even if they just give you a call to try to help organize something. How would that do? Would that be helpful? That would be helpful uh, if it could go through Craig as into uh, okay. getting those things for me. So I have your full name here, and we I will indeed supply, and I know Craig already has your number, but I'll reach out to him and just give him this potential option of a couple of groups that I know that might be able to help. Maybe Craig already knows this as well, and maybe he's gone down this avenue, but I will give this information to Craig Priority and see if we can't at least get you some food. That much I can yeah. work on. The medical issues, of course, hopefully they get satisfied between you and your doctors as soon as possible. So how about that? I'll reach out to Mr. Party and share the information that I have with him, and hopefully we can get you some help. Is that okay? That, that would be fine, but okay. I, I'm going to tell you, Patty, I'm actually hoping today that Craig puts in a letter that I have for a private taxi to the minister, and hopefully somebody will finally see that okay. I need to get my uh, way to my appointments. And uh, because one of my appointments in St. John's was supposed to be for a sleep study, which I couldn't get to because ambulance couldn't get me there on time. Because, as you know, they don't start until 6 o'clock in the morning. Right. And they said in order to get me there to the appointment, they would have to pick me up 1 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning, depending on uh, where the ambulance is coming from. Whether yeah. it be from I don't know what I can do about that, Sandra, and I hate to hear of your your ills and issues, but I, I'll reach out to Mr. Pardy with a couple of suggestions that I have, and he can deal directly with you. I, I wish you well, and stay in touch. Let me know how you're doing, okay, Sandra? Yes. Okay. And, Patty, I, I do have to go. Have, yes. Would I be able to phone you probably tomorrow? I have something that I gave to Craig uh, to pass to the other MHAs for to read. It's something that I wrote, and it has to do with how I feel a member of uh, the Parliament House or Newfoundland and Labrador Assembly uh, should be as a person, as a member. Let me talk to Mr. Pardy offline to see what he can share about that letter and the suggestions I have for him. I wish you well. I do have to go, unfortunately, Sandra, but yes, I will reach out to Mr. Pardy, okay? Thank you very much for your help, Patty. My, my pleasure. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we go back, we'll talk about the banks. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Ken, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Uh, pretty good. Uh, it's good. been a while since I've called uh, Open Line, but I'm kind of uh, prompted to, to do it this morning. 
just have a chat with you about the uh, Scotiabank's decision to close uh, their, their branches in uh, eight rural communities in this province. Mm-hmm. It's uh, People might not uh, remember, but uh, Bill Island was kind of at the start of this process some years ago. It was in March of 2001. So that's 22 years ago that they closed its branch here on Bell Island after being in operation here for some 77 years. And so uh, it's kind of sad to see since then there's been several communities, including Fogo Island, that's lost their branch. And I think as you articulated during your preamble, I mean, this is clearly a case of not just corporate greed, but extreme corporate greed. Uh, Scotiabank is one of the four or five main private sector banks in this country who are making uh, obscene amounts of, of profits. So in just as on Bell Island, uh, for these eight communities, it's not that these branches are not making any profit. It's a case that where they're not making enough profit in the eyes of the, I guess, of the shareholders and the senior management. I think it's just, I, I think it's, it's reprehensible to see them close these branches in, in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. And so, my heart goes out to the communities, and I know I was talking to a lady uh, in Bonavista. They're going to have, I believe, some sort of a public protest today. And I'd encourage all these communities uh, to stand up and to uh, fight this corporate greed. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. I, as you said in your preamble, Patty, yes, for sure, uh, banking has changed quite a bit in the last number of years. And clearly, lots of people... Uh, do do their banking online, but that's not everybody. And even those who do it online still have an occasion once in a while when they want to go to an actual branch and deal with an individual at the bank. Uh, so, I mean, if it's simply a case of where people are doing online banking, then they may as well close um, every branch everywhere, including every branch of every bank in, in St. John. So, I just think it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, I mean, just if I think back to what the bank that I go to, the bank that I've always used, and when I'd walk inside there, let's say, 20 years ago, the mm-hmm. number of tellers versus the number of tellers today, it's a different set of uh, circumstances. It simply is. Sure. What was once eight is now two. So yeah. the banks are, I mean, they're not hurting. They've got a couple of, they've taken a couple of knocks. Scotia Bank, for instance, uh, what was it? Net profit last year, about $10 billion or something, so not yeah. struggling. Now, they did indeed increase their dividends when the profits weren't necessarily what they were year over year. But, I mean, Scotiabank dividend, for those who have it, the bank's profit at a buck seventy a share is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, but well, like, uh, like I said earlier, they do indeed have to make provisions for bad debt. And that's on the rise. Credit is a problem for many people in this country. Net household income means we'll see more receiverships, more bankruptcies, more bad debts. So they'll set aside hundreds of millions of dollars for that. But they're still not dying a slow death out there. They have a model. If the model's not being satisfied in one branch to another, and that may indeed be one less branch in the city of St. John's, if that's what the model looks like, because they're not going to hesitate to do it. But at least if you close a branch in St. John's, there's lots of other banks, and they have several branches there. So at least the people in the city will still have access to a branch within Scotiabank. Yeah, I'm just talking about the model, not necessarily St. John's. That's right. Uh, And and it's funny, some people were saying now it means for some of them they've got to drive an hour uh, to get to a a bank branch. Well, uh, for Bell Islanders, it's half a day, because by the time you get in a lineup and get on a ferry, and get over and visit, say, a branch at the Avalon Mall of Scotiabank, and then come back to Portugal Cove and get back in line up again, we're talking a half day to excess banking. And it's it's just absolutely ridiculous. It is all about it is all about profit over people. And by the way, 
it's profitable over some people. In particular, across this country, all the big banks are closing their branches in rural parts of the country, particularly here in Atlantic Canada. And I think that's 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 a real problem. I, I, I got to say this, and in the case of Scotiabank, you know, it's funny how it is all about profit. And it's funny how sometimes they pretend uh, to be interested in people. I, I, I saw on a tweet about how Scotiabank is now going to provide 5,000 rolls of pride, the colour tape, you know, the big controversy uh, that the NHL where they ruled against hockey players using the pride tape. So, you know, this wonderful institution called the Bank of, of, of Nova Scotia is now going to provide 5,000 rolls of tape across Canada. And if you go up, look at the list of branches where they're going to provide this free tape, uh, they're all urban centres. Uh, and and they're not, it's not that they're interested in the issue of pride or serving young people. It's it's a way of trying to garner a little bit of PR for themselves, cheap yeah. PR as far as well, I'm concerned. I mean, it, it's part of just corporate Canada, isn't it? You know, yeah. Bell Let's Talk Day and all yes. that kind of stuff. There's There's some inkling of, you know, good citizenry, but there's also marketing and PR directly attached to this. This is not tramped right. up with, you know, you know, just one angle. They'll cover as many as they can with these altruistic uh, exercise right. they endeavor in. It doesn't make Scotiabank bad corporate citizens on the local level, because I guarantee you, the branch manager or the provincial manager here is not the person uh, telling who's going to be open and who's going to be closing. No. That is coming from Toronto. You can bet your bottom dollar. And Gu- look, Guaranteed it is, Patty, and, and it's certainly, it's all pretend. It's all pretend. If they're concerned about people, then they wouldn't be closing these branches and taking away important banking services from rural citizens. But let me just end off by saying this. i I, I got to be honest. I really found it uh, almost amusing if it wasn't so serious. But to hear Premier Fury uh, uh, on Open Line or, or certainly on Assad, a news item on VOCM website, saying that he's, he's contacted and he wants to chat with them about whether this is a permanent. I mean, give me a break. Here's a guy who's trying to garner a little bit of political support uh, by pretending he's interested in this issue. Scotiabank is not going to change its mind. For him to say that, uh, you know, I want to talk to them to see if this is permanent. No, Premier Ford, they're just closing their branches for a couple of weeks. But, I mean, give me a break. If he really wants to do something, here's what the government can do, by the way. Why don't they, for instance, because I think you mentioned really a, a good solution to this issue of these private banks closing in rural parts of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, and that is a credit union. Except in this province, there is a policy within government and within the Credit Union Guarantee Deposit Corporation, and and that's the that's the institution, by the way, that looks after the eight credit unions here in this province. Uh, they have an unwritten policy that says there'll be no more credit unions formed in Newfoundland and Labrador. So if Premier Fury wants to do something real, something that he can really do, then why doesn't he sit down and talk to the Credit Union Deposit Corporation and change their policy and allow more credit unions to be open in Newfoundland and Labrador? And perhaps it's time to form one uh, rural credit union that serves these rural communities that won't be served by these private banks. Yeah, and of course, if there's only one, there's going to be the question about where it exists. I'm pretty sure that... 
unwritten rule about credit union expansion is based on competition. And if the competition goes away, there's no competition for the credit union. So if there's no bank, like Scotiabank or BMO or anyone else that's in, in the community or in close proximity, that's probably the backbone of that particular unwritten rule. So now that's been satisfied. There isn't a bank. There isn't one on, in the sea. There's not one in Rodington by Arm. There's not one in sure. Twillingate. There's not one in a bunch of communities. Lewisport, Deer Lake, Whitburn, Flowers Cove. Well, I shouldn't say that because there are other banks in those areas. Yes. But places yeah. where there was only one game in town. And Scotiabank, if they go away, I think that allows for the credit union to move forward. And I, there's, look, there's a, there's a political victory available here, including sure. the allowance for a, a credit union. I also don't think it's a terrible idea to discuss whether or not we can go back to day, the days of post office banking. Because most people, totally you don't need to see your financial advisor. You need to pay your bill, right? So there's a big difference between walking into uh, the bank that I go to and seeing my advisor and doing some of the business that I do there, as opposed to simply want to pay my hydro bill. Because that's why a lot of people are going to be missing here, even when it comes to access to cash. It's one thing to have an ATM, but it's frustrating if it's an ATM owned by a private citizen. i got to pay him four bucks to get my own money out of the bank, right? So there's, totally there's options here. But I think post office banking is a conversation that we can entertain here, and credit union uh, as well. I'll add to it, you know, what the federal government can indeed do. I don't know if this drives any of it. But last budget, there was something called the Canadian or the Canada Recovery Dividend. So the other financial institutions, big banks, paying what they call a windfall profit. 50% temporarily on earnings over a billion dollars a year. So when people talk about windfall tax, in one breath they think it's a good idea until it affects the operations where they live, then it's a bad idea. Last word to you, Ken, before I have to go. Exactly right. So, so again, I think there there are solutions. I think credit union development and also post office banking are two good possibilities that can really make a difference here. Uh, governments can't make those happen, but they can. They need to change some regulations to allow these things to happen. And and I think it's time for someone like Premier Fury to get real. And never mind talking about foolish things like talking to the banks if they're going to change their mind. Uh, change some regulations to allow post office banking, or to allow more development of credit unions in this province. Yeah, credit union would be provincial. The whole issue with post office, that would have to be driven by the federal government, given the, what, what Canada Post means. But Ken, I'm off to the break. I'm glad you called. Okay, take care. Thanks, you Patty, very much. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a pump for truck fundraiser, I think probably spurred on by the fact that I said uh, fire truck in every hall. Then we're going to talk sharing the harvest, Steamville Airport, more banking, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's roll here. Let's go to line number three. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Been a while. How's, how you doing? Uh, but, uh, Patty, just like talk about sharing harvest there this morning. Uh, we, we are, uh, as you know, or your listeners know, we're the group that successfully lobbied the provincial government to allow us to, uh, big game hunters to donate the moose and caribou meat to the food banks. And this year, Patty, give you a little uh, update on Don. We've donated some uh, capelin, some codfish, uh, blueberries, uh, we had half a moose uh, donated to us a couple weeks ago by a couple of uh, local uh, Mount Pearl hunters. And we've uh, do- also donated uh, so 10 gallons of parrotberries, berries, 11 gallons of blueberries, and I got 10 brace of rabbits on order. Uh, what I'd like to talk about this morning, though, Patty, is try to drum up some uh, interest in the big game hunting community for hunters to make a donation of moose or caribou meat to the food banks. 
Uh, it's, been, it's a slow year. I don't know if it's uh, because of uh, the weather slowing people down. It's warm weather for hunting. Uh, you know, some people are in a group of four and they get a quarter each. You can't expect to get much off them. But there's other other hunters that, you know, get a whole moose themselves. And each year, unfortunately, Patty, there's a uh, there's a waste each time at the bottom of the deep, deep freezer. And Sharon Harvest is the uh, program that can help uh, uh, steer clear of this wastage of the big game meat. So why is the wastage happening? Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. The, uh, at the end of the year, the uh, you look down your deep freezer and there's leftover meat or leftover game or leftover food in the bottom of the deep freezer, which is uh, freezer. Oh, yes. And it goes in the garbage. Of course. Right. Okay. And, you know, I mean, the same thing happens with a lot of game, doesn't it? You know, taking the bag limit of birds because you like hunting birds doesn't mean you're going to eat all the birds. I would imagine there's a purge of most freezers in the province, you know, come season over season, with the, especially like birds. That one always pops in my mind. You know, I'm surprised there's a whole lot of waste in big game, for instance, but I'm sure that happens as well. Yes, Patty, you're right. And unfortunately, that is the case. Uh, with some people, Patty, I'm not pointing blame or anything. With some people, uh, highly regard the game or game birds to the point that they like to keep in the freezer just for the sake of saying, I got a partridge in the fridge. He's been there for two years, but he's still a partridge in the fridge. But that partridge is no good anymore. No, that's right. So, you know, we just like to work to the big game hunting community to, uh, you know, program. And contact the food bank in your name in your neck of the woods to see if uh, if uh, they are interested in any donation. I'm sure they are. Uh, before we let you go, and I'll try to get back on track with scheduled breaks. Barry, the last time you were here in the studio, did you leave anything behind by chance? Uh, I'm not sure, Patty. Uh, a pair of sunglasses. I don't know if I've been in the studio, Patty. Okay. Be honest. No problem. So uh, one of the uh, other staff members here asked me to ask you because someone did indeed leave a pair of sunglasses in the studio. I look at them every day. They're pretty good-looking shades, actually. But yeah. anyway, Barry, if people want to connect with you, whether it be donate or look for donations, what do they need to do? They just go on to our Facebook page, Sharing the Harvest NL, and uh, you can see my phone number there. And if you want to make a donation, give me a call. We, uh, we offer financial assistance to at the butcher shop. Sounds great. It's a great program. It's, you know, I, in some respect, it's too bad it took government so long to decide to b implement this because it makes all the sense in the world. When we talk about folks who have excess and folks who are in need, and we talk about the caliber, the quality, the protein nature of uh, wild meat, I mean, this is just a no-brainer. Barry, keep up the good work. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Patty. I just, I just mentioned one more thing, and sure. that's about the DFO, the River Guardians, Patty. Uh, we got the 40 of them hired on for an extra four weeks. Patty, I hope it's not. we're not in the same position next year where we're pleading and begging the, go, the, the DFO to keep them hired on. In New Year's, I'd like to sit down with DFO officials and try to hammer out some kind of uh, program to keep the uh, the River Guardians hired on for a long period of time to protect the Atlantic Sam for future generations of our kids. 100%. You know, I hear from some of the Guardians and you know, fewer covering more water, uh, not throughout the extent of the entire season, because as we all know, when the cat's away, the mice will play, and in this case, is the Guardians and the Poachers. Yes, sir. Appreciate the call, Barry. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Barry. As always, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Take good care.
All right, bye-bye. All right, let's try to get back on track here. When we come back, we're going to go down to Twillingate, say good morning to the mayor, Justin Blackler, and then we'll speak with Bill on the airport. Then we're going to put a pumper truck in some fire hall where we'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five, say good morning to the mayor of the town of Twillingate. That's Justin Blackler. Good morning, Mayor Blackler. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you. How about you? That's good, buddy. So, Patty, uh, we're call- obviously we're calling for similar reasons that a lot of municipalities have been calling about, and that's about Scotiabank pulling their branch out of our town. Um, pretty common topic right now, I'm aware. I know there's not a whole lot that these phone calls and my frustration and the town's frustration is going to do about it, but we still feel it's something we got to verbalize and, and, and get out there for sure. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I've got some emails saying, what's the big deal? It's probably not a big deal if you live in the east end of town. But if you have the next closest bank is an hour away or something, then it is some sort of deal. But for me, Mayor Blackler, it really feels like some of the reaction is not only directly associated with the bank. It's what people see as the erosion of service in smaller parts of the country, right? Because the banks are one thing, and then you look at access to health care, and then you look at the post office is gone. So I think it's just the pile on that makes people react the way they are here. Maybe not necessarily all about the bank, but the bank is part of what they see happening and trending over the years. The, the bank is, is, is far of a bigger picture, Patty, like you said, and it's not a big deal. And I know one of your callers earlier said it's not a big deal if you've got you know, four or five other institutions around you that you can, you can access. Like, it's no secret, Twillingate is an age, aging population. Um, I mean, we're boom and bust during the summer for tourism, but the rest of the year we're, we're, we're a you know, senior-heavy population. And those banks are there for those individuals. I, I know I'm part of the problem. Um, a lot of my banking I do online, everything is mobile, whatever. I but do we, all mine online. Absolutely. And it doesn't impact me as much as it will as some parts of my family. But, I mean, those institutions are there to help the people that need those physical buildings in, in the town. And the thing about it is now, that's an hour drive to Gander. Um, and, I mean, the spinoff from there, Patty, and I know it's hard to get into all of it, but when you go to Gander to do your banking, now you're, now you're going to do your grocery shopping. 100%. Right? Now you're going to get your services in that in our community. So we're going to see long-lasting effects of this, of this, you know, pulling out of this business. And I think what hit me hardest is, the phone call we get when we're being told that they're consolidating services to better serve their patrons. No, you're not. These changes are not better serving your patrons. They're financial decisions to a business, absolutely. But don't pretend to me that you're you're you know you're merging us with Gander or with Grand Falls to better serve the people of Tullingate because it's not the reality. The reality is it is a big impact to us. Now, luckily, Patty, I know that the or Patty, the conversation was being had about the credit union. We do have a local credit union, and we're very lucky to have that credit union. And really and truly, I hope that a lot of business is now transferred to that local credit union. we got good local management, um, beautiful building there, good services. So I'm hoping that the town can support their local business and, and make sure that their future here is bright for sure. I would imagine for folks who will be directly impacted that they'll probably very carefully consider moving their affairs to the credit union because it's right there where they were used to going for the banking. So, I mean, when Scotiabank makes these types of decisions, they may save some money today. They may lose some customers because, like most everything out there, it's a competitive world. There's a reason why they dangle incentives to move your affairs to one bank or one telecom company or to travel with one airline because it's one thing to get a customer, quite another to keep them. So inevitably, they'll lose some customers. They've done the math here. These are not dumb people. They've done the math. They've you know factored in. If we lose 30% of our business to the credit union, we're still up X. Or this doesn't fit our model and we get it. But I think the ultimate point, or one of the points that you're making, which I think 
you know, kind of speaks to some of the emails I get. What's the big deal? Do it online. Da, da, da. If people will drive to do their banking, they're going to come home with a car full or a truck full of other stuff that they would normally have bought in your community. That's the, the ripple effect, right? There's that's where it becomes effect. a bigger problem. Absolutely. And, I mean, these rural communities are trying to survive. I mean, there's always just a debate between rural and urban centers. I mean, I'm not even going to get into that. I mean, there's sure. a idea for, for obvious reasons. But the people that do live in the rural communities are there because they love it and they're concerned about it. And yes, I know we can all move to St. John's and have access to these things, but that's not that's not our wish or desire or really a possibility. So we had to fight for the services that we do have. And the Scotiabank has given those services to, to individuals who need that physical plant in the community. And losing it is a major issue. And again, the spinoffs, I, I'm guilty of it. I'll go to Gander for uh, any given reason and I'll stop in Walmart or I'll stop in Dominion. So I know this is only going to be a, an increase in that. And now you're going for banking on a regular basis. And what about businesses who are doing deposits over there on, on a daily basis? So what's their choices now? So, and like I said, the credit union, hopefully, may be able to offer most of those services. But if not, our residents are stuck with traveling an hour, an hour and a half in order to do daily banking. And I don't think that's right, Patty. Yeah, you know, I, I tell you what, it's always not surprising to me, but I never know what's going to be a big issue in people's minds. I wasn't here the last two days, wasn't feeling well, but... I guess the bank and the issue of services in rural Canada and rural Newfoundland Labrador has dominated, and I get it, because I just think it's bigger than the banks. <laughs> it, it is. Today the bank is the story, the next one will be the, the clinic closed, the next one will be the post office closed, the next one will be that the mom and pop shop is closed, and all that means is i got to drive further for things that used to be right alongside where I live. So it, it's, it's a big picture conversation. I, I, I think you're right, and like I said, I think people of rural Newfoundland are, are not seeing as much investment, they're just seeing things that are being taken away. So. It, it's, it's fearful when you see your community and you're losing anything. And I mean, the bank being something that you thought would be a staple in the community for, you know, all your live long day, but it's not anymore. And it makes people nervous. I totally get it. You know, it's easy enough for me, bloody towny, right, to try to understand these issues. But I have lots of roots and family and friends that live in smaller parts of the province. So I do my level best. I, I can't walk a mile in your shoes, but I can give it a shot. So that's where I think, you know, we have to broaden our understanding of where these problems and what they mean for real people living where they are. Because, again, if, if all of a sudden a retail shop where you live has seen their margins, or pardon me, their profits drop by 30% within 24 months of the bank leaving town, that paints a very clear picture. We're not talking about the bank now. We're also talking about the shop, and we're talking about the drive and the price of gas. And I mean, there's just so much to these things. I think you're talking with the whole community, Patty. I think, I think so, too. It's effect of the whole community, and it is what it is. I mean, I got more phone calls on this than almost anything else in the last two years that I've been mayor of Twangate. So it's obviously hitting residents hard. Um, you get the jobs, the job loss. You know, eight or ten great jobs in this community is going to be gone. And then you've got the connections to that place, and 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 then the seniors trying to access the, the services, and it's just it's a hard hitting impact now. And like I told a lady that called from Scotiabank, who apologized to me, I said I understand that this decision is made well above your head, so your apology is is accepted, but it doesn't mean anything. And I says just like me being frustrated and saying things to you is not going to change Scotiabank's decision, but it's just things that we have to we have to talk about because we can't just sit there and let it happen. But at least I'm frustrated getting out there about what's going on. That's nature of the beast. And I, you know, I'll add this last comment before I give you the last word is I, I think we're very clearly, you know, and I think it's been further exacerbated over the last few years, whether it be pandemic related matters or otherwise, 
the stress is real. Things are changing. And for some people, you know, change is the only constant in this world. But change is hard. And when change is coming as fast and furious as it is, it becomes a bit mind-numbing, a bit dizzying. And consequently, human nature means people will get frustrated and maybe a little bit more frustrated than they were would in years past when, thing, when change comes to town. So it's all those combinations that are making for a very difficult landscape. People are used to what they're used to. And when it changes... It's hard to accept sometimes, and frustration will boil over, and if that results in a call to you or me, once again, Nature of the Beast, hopefully what also comes from these conversations and or frustrations is to try to find solutions. Because it's one thing to complain, quite another to think, maybe the credit union is the answer, maybe the post office bank is an answer. So let's take it from, I'm mad now, (laughs) how can I temper my emotions, maybe this will work, how do we get to that end result? Is that the provincial government, the federal government, municipal government? So... You know, let's make sure we include the frustration with the potential solution. And I and I agree wholeheartedly. It's no good to rant and rave about it, not doing anything about it. And that's what we talked about right off the bat. I've been telling people myself that we got a local credit union here um, that can offer great services. Let's use them. Now, if there's something that they can't do, fine and dandy. Let's look for another means. But if you've got a, the possibility of investing in a local in, in a local branch, and let's do it. Let's make sure that their their profits, their success, and and their lifespan in our town is is steady. Right. So. I appreciate the time, Patty, to be able to come and talk about it. Um, it's a sad story for a lot of rural Newfoundland, obviously, but I don't think we're going to change it. But I think, like you said, we've got to make plans for the future on how to remedy the issue that this is going to bring to us. 100%. I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Blackler. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. Twilligate Mayor Justin Blackler on the issue. And I really do think that that's a big part of this equation is the change is happening quick. And what change? Every change. And it's a funny thing and a bit of a juxtaposition, but... Change legitimately is the only constant. (laughs) It is the only constant in our world is change. How we recognize it, roll with it, propose solutions or backfill what we're losing, that's also part of the conversation that we should and hopefully include. All right, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, I appreciate the patience, both Corey and Bill. We're talking pumper truck and we're talking about the Stephenville Airport or whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Bill, you're on the air. Uh, Yes, Patty. Yes, Bill. Yeah, Yeah, Patty. Yes, sir. Go right ahead. Yes, Patty. I'd like to refer back to last Thursday. I believe you had somebody on the line by the name of Sean mm-hmm. regarding the Steve Mull Airport. Yes, sir. Yeah, we'd like to, to hear more about that, you know, as concerned uh, people and citizens of the area uh, as to what's happening with the airport. This was very much, I'll refresh the listener's uh, memory here. This is very much an issue of who knew what when. So part of the Steamville Airport uh, itself, there's been a contract awarded to the airport by John Rizzi's group of World Energy GH2 for a laydown yard. Coming with, if I remember the number correctly, was $2 million per year. Is that the right number, Bill? Am I remembering that correctly? Well, that $5 million or something. Okay, millions. Well, let's leave it at that until I get the uh, confirmed number in my head again. So the question is, if that was always in the offing and the potential was there, how could that land not be splintered out of the sale to the Diamond Group so that the town of Steamville could recover some losses that they absorbed because of the operations or the lack thereof at the Steamville Airport? That's what we're talking about, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. That's what we're concerned about here. It's a fair question. Yes. 
So you said you were going to follow it up. Uh, we invited the mayor on. I don't, uh, and I was away the last two days, so I don't know if there's been any reaction from them. But I can follow up with David again to see if they bit at our invitation. Yes, because a lot of concerned citizens here in Stephenville and, and the Port of Bort and St. Bay St. George area is certainly concerned about that, eh? So that's one issue regarding the airport. Do you have anything else on your mind or your list of questions? Is there anything beyond that with the airport sale or anything else you'd like me to add to the list when and if we get a chance to speak with Mayor Rose? No, that would be about the main crux of it all. You know, we want to concern uh, to see if that steam is going to benefit from this uh, this sale, you know. Well, I can't answer it, but I guess the, the real benefit that's quite clear is that the town clears itself of any operational cost that was borne by the town over the last number of years. And there's only been one councillor ever voted against any of the monies flown to the airport. That was Len, uh, Lenny Tiller. So we can add that to the concern. So, I mean, there's a good side to it. And obviously, if what the Diamond Group proposed initially ever comes to pass, there'll be a massive upside to the Steamville area. You know, with a couple hundred million dollars of this, I'm not saying it's going to happen because I have no earthly idea, but if that does take place and increase commercial traffic and all those things, it can only be good. But I completely understand Sean's concern and your follow-up concern here. If the town knew prior to the sale that they could indeed recover some funds by simply splintering out that laydown yard uh, piece of the, uh, of the property and sign the contract directly with Risley, did they know? And I mean, I'll never be able to necessarily get directly down to the brass tacks and the firm timelines of who knew what when, but I'll try. Yes, well, that's our concern, right? It's a fair one. Yeah, I'll, I'll follow up. I mean, it's right. it's time we have a Mr. Diamond down again, too, just to see the status. Because, you know, people can ask questions. It doesn't make you just a, a cynic for the sake of or a skeptic for the sake of. Because, for instance, right. the money that he was able to raise to clear off the uh, outstanding liabilities, it came from a lotto winner, which is vastly different than the traditional lending markets. So we'll get a status update because I think it's important for the people on the West Coast to know where exactly are we. Okay, we'll invite both on. Thank you so much. Appreciate the time, Bill. Yeah, bye. You take care. Bye-bye. That's an absolutely fair question. Is Because if the town knew, I mean, if they did indeed know, well prior to the sale, which was ongoing, remember, when it was initially announced that the Diamond Group, Mr. Diamond Carl, was going to uh, propose taking over the airport and clear up liabilities, and then we're told a lot of the delay became... Uh, part of the conversation because of outstanding court proceedings regarding bankruptcy or insolvency or something, if I remember th that part of the story correctly. And I'm not feeling great, so my memory's probably not in full gear here this morning. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Corey. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How were you this morning? Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? That's good, my friend. I'm, I'm good. Uh, calling this morning, Patty, uh, as a member of the Volunteer Party department here in Bonavista, uh, we're in the process of getting a telethon on the go because we've got to raise some money for a new tanker pumper. Congratulations and bravo for being a volunteer firefighter, number one. Uh, tell us about the old truck. How long you had it? What's wrong with it? Uh, well, we've, we've, all of our trucks now are at least 20 years old. And uh, we've... we've I've, I've, I've had a lot of repairs done on it lately, and we need we need bigger equipment, right? Fair enough. At some point, every vehicle right. and something that's critically important as a pumper truck, they start to nickel and dime you. Time to upgrade. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Time to upgrade. Yeah. Uh, 
this new this new tanker pumper, she's a fifteen hundred gallon with an enclosed enclosed pump panel, so that the uh, the operator is working inside, not out not out in the in the uh, elements. Okay. Uh, she's going to cost us eight hundred and fifty thousand in total. As of right now, we have five hundred and five. Where did you get the five hundred and five? Uh, fundraisers. Uh, government government is kicking in three hundred and eighty-two thousand. Okay. Okay. Yep. So on the second of November, at the local Barnabas Alliance Club, uh, we're having our our annual telephone. We've had we've had telephones in the last two years. So this will be our third year. It's going to be from from seven p.m. to eleven p.m. And it's going to be live on Facebook, and it's going to be live on the local community channel. And uh, anybody who'd like to make a donation, a card at night, the number the number is 709-468-2300. Or they can e-transfer at BonavistaFire at Outlook.com, all lowercase letters. Okay, BonavistaFire, I was looking for my pen there. Bonavista oh, Fire, uh, I, that's my fault. Bonavista Fire, uh, give me the uh, the transfer address one more time. Bonavista Fire at Outlook dot com. Okay, and what's the number one more time, sir? Uh, Seven zero nine. Yep. Four six eight two three zero zero. How many volunteers on the force? Uh, right now we've got uh, twenty nine. I think it is. Do you have a, an issue getting new recruits? Um, sometimes we do. Sometimes, yeah. Well, I mean, you consider the volunteer movement here in the province, but when you add the traumatic uh, events or incidents that you respond to and the risk to your health, uh, physical and mental, it's a big ask. But, you know, we're so grateful that people are willing to be volunteer firefighters. Talk about pride and community. Good job. Well well done. I've, I've been there 24 years myself. Wow, good for you, Corey. Where does this pumper truck come from? Just curious. Uh, she's coming from Ontario. Okay. Is there such a thing as a gently used pumper truck, or is this brand new off the assembly line? Uh, she's brand new after the assembly line. She's coming there. She's she's expected to be here in September 2024. Okay, so you still got some time. And when people are just making a straight up donation, do do they get a tax receipt by chance? Yeah, they can. Okay. Yeah. All right. So if you are in and around Bonavista, and you never know, you might be the family that needs the response of the volunteer firefighters and hopefully their new pumper truck. Seven zero nine four six one. Is that a one? Four six eight. Four six eight. Man, my. I'm, I write like a doctor. Four six eight twenty three hundred or Bonavista Fire at Outlook dot com. What date is it on? One more time. November the second. November the second. My wife's and birthday. If, anybody, if there's anybody out there wants to make a donation in the area, in the meantime, they can drop it off at the town town office. Good luck with it, Corey. Give us another call just prior to. We'll give her another pump. Yeah, sure. Good man. Thanks for this. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Bye bye. 24 years, a volunteer firefighter in Bonavista, Corey Whiffen. One more time, 709-468-2300. It's going to be live on the old Crackbook, the Facebook, November the 2nd, or you can make an uh, email transfer, Fire at Outlook.com. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about carbon offsets. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the president and CEO of Sharp Management Limited. That's Glenn Sharp. Good morning, Glenn. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you today? I'm not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, good. So you and I have spoken in the past, I'm pretty sure, about carbon offsets, how they work. And in your world, it's mostly about engineered wetlands. But you've uh, just developed a relationship, which we'll start our conversation with MNL. What are you doing with the municipalities of Newfoundland and Labrador? Well, we're helping them uh, offset their carbon footprint for the MNL conference. This is the provincial municipalities conference that's being held uh, this week. It's starting today, I believe at the uh, convention center in St. John's. And I believe this will be the first provincial municipalities conference in Canada to go carbon neutral. So you've done work with other organizations, Energy NL and interestingly MISA, which we'll get to in a moment. How do you go about uh, coming up with a number of what their carbon offsets requirement would be. So does this include travel of all the delegates, uh, the emissions related directly to the conference itself? Tell us about the math. Yes, well, um, we hire or the conference will hire an independent uh, evaluator for that, and that's uh, Fundamental Inc. uh, here, a Newfoundland company that does carbon evaluations. And they'll go through exactly what you indicated. They'll look at the convention, uh, the use of the heat, the anything that would create uh, carbon emissions for the actual space that's rented. And then looking at the actual conference and those that are involved with traveling for speaking and being part of the convention, not the delegates per se, but the actual speakers and everything else. And any other things that uh, come in for shipment of goods or anything else related to the convention. Okay. And so, you know, for many, we talk about carbon neutral, which I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding out there amongst the general public, exactly what we're trying to achieve or what that actually means. And then the concept of carbon offsets, which is not intended to reduce emissions. When you can't do anything about reduction, a carbon offset might be of interest to a company or an organization like MNL or MISA or Energy NL or whatever the case may be. So... I, I guess the fundamental question for people who'd like to know more about it is, first, before we get into engineer wetlands and things you do out in Stephenville, for instance, what exactly is a carbon offset? How does it work, or how is it intended to work? Okay, well, yes, it's a little complicated, I understand, but the um, we can't all eliminate our pollution. We can't stop driving our cars or heating our houses. So the idea is that there's another way that you can reduce that by offsetting it. So you would purchase the offsets. Let's say you drive your car and it's 10 tons a year in carbon offsets that your truck or your car produces. You could buy 10 tons of carbon offsets to offset that emission. Those emissions then are canceled out and you become carbon neutral. Where are you buying those carbon offsets from is from a project that is eliminating pollution being created. So you are in the process eliminating pollution, even though you can't eliminate it in your car, these funds are going to projects like the engineered wetlands where we generate our carbon offsets, and they're doing sewage treatment for towns with no electricity, no moving parts, no fossil fuels being burnt to create the electricity to make them run. So they have the ability to generate an offset, and then companies and individuals could buy one offset, 100 offsets, offset their 
footprint 10%, 20% up to 100% and go carbon neutral. How do I buy it? So, I, you know, well, before we get into, you know, what the upside is, whether it be optics and or actual concern with emissions and emission control, how do I buy one? Well, you would come to uh, Sharp Management or other companies. Uh, here in Newfoundland, we're the, as far as I know, still the only company producing certified uh, carbon offsets for sale. I'm sure there'll be more coming. But you could go to brokers throughout Canada and buy projects that are in Canada or outside of Canada to buy offsets. You want to make sure those offsets are certified. That has gone through the diligence and the reviews to make sure they're uh, of a high standard, very legitimate. You could buy offsets from India or China or other places that are a bit more dubious at much lower cost, but they're not certified. So you want to buy good certified offsets and you would go directly to a company that's producing such as ours, or you would go to a broker and our broker for Canada is Carbon Zero. So who, who does certification, CSA? No, the certification is done by actually uh, auditors that are um, regulated to be able to provide this certification and they provide their review and their reports to the CSA to say this is bona fide, these are legitimate, uh, we've scrutinized this, this is good. And then the CSA getting that from uh, an independent auditor then says, okay, we will now host them on our clean projects registry. Without that certification, you can't go on the registry. So it's uh, CSA doesn't actually do the certification, but they require the certification to then be registered. Okay. Is that registry uh, national or is this a provincial registry, or is it both? No, this is uh, national. Okay. Um, we're in the volunteer market and have to go through the CSA because our provincial government hasn't got our regulations in place yet even though I've been asking for it for quite some time, so that I can't go through a Newfoundland regulated and sell to the polluters, the oil and gas companies and so forth. So I'm left to go to a volunteer market until they get their uh, regulations in place. Okay, let's talk about engineered wetlands. So number one, how does sewage treatment work if it's not through your process? So how would it be different at the Riverhead treatment plant here in the city versus what you're doing in Stephenville and I believe Appleton and Glenwood? Okay, well, Riverhead is not a good comparison. Okay, to you pick one. Only doing primary treatment, but if you had a full treatment system in Riverhead doing primary, secondary and tertiary treatment like our wetlands do, then you would be using uh, airs, blowers, motors to pump air into the sewage to get bacteria activity. The bacteria consume the waste. We all, all sewage treatment systems in one way or another use bacteria to consume the waste to reduce the contaminants back to clean water. The bacteria consumes the waste, cleaning it, cleaning it until you get clean water at the end. Our wetlands do that through plants that pump air into their rhizome, the roots of the plants, allowing bacteria to live below the surface that wouldn't normally live there, aerobic bacteria that need air, so they don't normally live below the ground, but with the plants, they now have a habitat below the ground, the sewage comes in, 
below the surface in the wetland and the bacteria consume the sewage contaminants as it moves through it gets cleaner and cleaner and cleaner and by the end of the wetland you've got tertiary treatment the highest level of treatment uh, for sewage treatment uh, we're currently in a province that really requires secondary treatment but our wetlands outperform the provincial requirements and provide tertiary treatment how is the uh, outcomes measured so I mean for instance you wouldn't be using chemicals or electricity or any of those types of things so how do you measure effectiveness um, that's done through the um, provincial and federal standards where you're measuring such things as BOD uh, biochemical oxygen demand um, the amount of contaminants in um, water is measured in um, a fashion that indicates how much oxygen would be consumed to to deal with the contaminants. The lower and lower and lower value you get of a BOD result shows you it getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. And the tertiary treatment standards is 10 milligrams per liter, and we're below that on average at the uh, Stephenville, Appleton, Glenwood, Bishop Falls main treatment systems that are treating towns and our other little small systems that are treating smaller facilities such as uh, tourist information bureaus and small hotel or things of that nature. I'm actually really curious about your relationship with MISA because MISA is a company that is 100% in energy reduction uh, related matters but there are smart thermostats. So how does the relationship look like or what does the relationship look like between yourself and MISA? Well, we're very happy with the relationship with um, MISA and what they're doing and their overall goals to uh, produce a product which reduces the consumptions of electricity and usage. Uh, Joshua Green looked at uh, what we were doing and said, uh, oh, back in 2018, I believe, we should be carbon neutral as a company. So they offset their own company carbon footprint every year and purchase our offsets and have done that since 2018 and i'll be seeing joshua at the uh, uh, econix conference which is going on uh, tomorrow and that conference as well is purchasing our carbon offsets to offset their conference which is going on in the delta on thursday i believe well, they're certainly compatible with their business model, period, and the intention re related to their smart thermostats. That company has grown leaps and bounds, and good for them. My understanding is big contract with Hydro-Quebec. They've got business in the United States or in Europe and Australia, so it's a wise investment that I, we're long overdue to make in our home, but that's a company we should all be very proud of here in this uh, province, uh, Misa and the young fellows behind it, Joshua Green, as you mentioned. Uh, anything else you want to tell us this morning, Glenn, before we leave for the news? No, I concur with you. Misa's a great company. I'm really glad they reached out to us, and we're glad we can provide that service to them. And we expect there's other companies out there that would like to take advantage and start offsetting their needs, 10%, 25%, or going carbon neutral like Misa. So thank you very much for your interest today, and I'll be glad to follow up with you if you have any further questions in the future. I appreciate the time this morning, Glenn. Thank you. Good luck. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. welcome. Bye-bye. It's Glenn Sharp. President and CEO of Sharp Management, some of those things. You know, last week we spent a bit of time talking about uh, carbon storage, and we should pick up on that, Dave, where we left off because we had very limited time with Dr. Leslie James because we're going to hear a lot about that. 
you know, while there will be people that are 100% behind the rally cry of axe the tax, even the party, the CPC, uh, who are interested and they pledge to axe the carbon tax, they are still talking about emission control, notably through technology. And carbon storage is going to be something we're going to hear an awful lot about. And so I think it would be helpful for me, and if it's helpful for me, hopefully it's the same for you, is we find out a bit more about it, how it works, costs associated with it, you know, how it's applied. And especially when we talk about, as Premier Fury said, financial opportunity here to pump carbon from wherever into depleted oil wells off our shores. Pretty technologically advanced kind of conversation, but worth talking about if we're talking about uh, contributions to the provincial coffers. And yes, something that is a technological replacement for what would be market pressure point stuff like a tax. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, tons of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to Tanish Bat. Good morning, Tanish. You're on the air. Good morning. Thank you. Happy to have you back on the show. Before we get into our past conversation, tell us about United for Literacy. What are you doing? Yeah, so United for Literacy is a, is a nonprofit organization that look, works to improve the quality of life um, and educational opportunities, providing accessible and equitable educational opportunities for kids um, locally and globally. Um, and so we have regular fundraisers and awareness events to provide these equitable opportunities. and. Um, most recently, what we're planning on doing is having a uh, our regular Halloween food drive, Halloween for Hunger food drive, at which um, we're collecting non-perishable food items to be donated to our local community at the Single Parent Association. Terrific. Tell us about how United for Literacy works, if you don't mind, because, you know, when we talk about equitable, there's a difference between equality and uh, equity. So how does it work? Do you know? Yeah, for sure. So... Um, so United for Literacy or U4L. So um, our team, we have a team across Canada, and we look to highlight the needs of our individual communities as a whole um, across the country and even in other countries as well. Um, and so the way we do that is we, our, our teams, we uh, consider what uh, the needs are in our particular areas, in our particular um, regions, and we try to have fundraisers or we try to have initiatives um, that recognize the unmet needs in those particular regions. Um, so, for example, um, we know that here in NL, um, oftentimes, like we might, uh, like food insecurity has become um, somewhat of an issue, especially after the pandemic. Um, and so, what our goal is is to try to, you know, uh, make sure that. Um, everyone, every child has that opportunity to, you know, start the day off right with a healthy breakfast um, or healthy meal. Um, additionally, UFRL's goal has also been um, to provide support to children in rural India. And so we've had um, a lot of fundraisers in the past number of years um, that have raised funds for sponsoring the education of impoverished children uh, in rural India so that they can also um, go to school and have that opportunity to get their education. So it's just recognizing like the needs in uh, our community as a whole on different levels. Terrific work. I, I don't know if this is a fair question. I'll ask it and you can duck it if you see fit, Tanesh. 
feeling any of the strain on relations between the two countries, India and Canada? Uh, yes. So, um, sorry, could you, I'm not sure if I heard that correctly. Could you say that again, just if you don't mind? You, you talk about raising funds for impoverished children in India. And, of course, yeah. there's been a lot of stuff in the news lately regarding Canadian and Indian relationships. Uh, you know, whether it be at the G7 and or the allegations associated with an assassination of a BCC leader. So has that put a strain in your mind? Because you'd have a much different perspective than I would, for instance, given your heritage. So what do you make of what we, we've heard on those international fronts? Um, yeah, for sure. So you throw, um at the end of the day, where it, it, it hasn't been, um, we, so I guess it almost comes down to how, we operate at the end of the day we we fundraise the we fundraise the money and then um we have a part we have a partner collaboration organization um the manjuri sanskriti memorial foundation um and ultimately once we have the money uh fundraise we collaborate with them um and we use the money and uh, or they take the money and then through their school system there they can help sponsor the education of children so um at the end of the day UFRL has been dedicated to um i guess uh like sponsoring the education of children in rural india and so we're, we'll continue to do that no matter what circumstances may Side. Yeah, it, it, it's a positive position in so far as relations go, and uh, yeah. I, I appreciate your uh, your comments there, Tanish. Uh, so give us the details one more time about how people can contribute to United for Literacy and the Single Parents Association and the Food Drive. What's happening? Give us the reminder. Yeah, for sure. So um, members and volunteers affiliated with United for Literacy, um, we're gonna, we'll be going um, in the Greater St. John's communities in um, like some of the some of our local neighborhoods. Um, collecting non-perishable food items, so um, uh, people are like um, are going to be collecting there. And anyone who's interested in donating to this cause um, can bring any non-perishable food items to the single parent uh, to either the single parent association directly, or we have um, a drop-off location at Gonzaga High School, and um, all proceeds at, uh, will be going to our uh, partners at the single parent association. Brilliant. Good work. Tanish, are you still at Gonzaga? Yes, I am. A great 12 this year? Yes, sir. Last time we spoke was on International Chess Day, and it was a fantastic conversation uh, that I recall. So how's the chess club and the strength of it looking this year? Chess is actually, it's been great. Um, Gonzaga Chess Club's been operating quite well, uh, once again this year, thankfully. And I th I just want to say chess and NL overall has also um been amazing we've just had a tournament this past weekend and we had uh, a great turnout so the future for chess um i guess a provincial level and hopefully even in the coming weeks and months a national level will become um is becoming quite bright and i'm looking forward to seeing what that entails so give us an idea of how and why it's looking bright what do you mean yes so we've not only had a huge amount of, we've not only had some huge numbers and great turnouts for tournaments but um our clubs across the province have also been thriving we have a club um i'm part of like the provincial chess association board and we have a club at uh 
um, at Vanier Elementary. That's been thriving quite well. And school clubs across the province have been looking to, you know, get uh, people um, involved. And we've had a huge amount of uh, clubs that are, like, looking to start up. So there's there's just been an overall like an interest like or increase in interest for the number of people who want to play the number of schools who want to have that opportunity to host like chess clubs for their children to play, and that's I guess that's what I kind of mean when it's looking bright like we're seeing a lot more interest and a lot more involvement for chess in um, the past past year or even two years compared to what we've seen earlier. Yeah, I mean, where my wife teaches and where my boys went to school at Venn, has always had a particularly strong chess club. He even produced a national age group champion uh, at one point, uh, Young Picard. Uh, I can't remember his first name. Uh, what kind of ranking do you carry, Tanish? Um, so I've played at the provincial and even the national levels. Um, they're like the I played at the provincial finals a few uh, few times, and I played. Uh, I've been to nationals this, just this past May. Uh, that was my seventh time going, um, which I was really thankful for the opportunity for. But yeah, I've been playing provincially and nationally for a while now. This will be my last year. Well, uh, keep up the good work on all fronts. Good luck with your chess game, and thanks for doing what you're doing with uh, United for Literacy and the Single Parents Association. Nice to speak with you again, Tanish. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Take good care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Tanish Bat, doing good work. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. A lot of young people out there doing some pretty extraordinary things. It's certainly one of those topics that I'm more than interested in having conversations about on this program. Sometimes, whether it be certain segments of society, adults or seniors or youth, they all kind of get, you know, painted with the same brush when the fact youth there's tons of them doing amazing things okay we see the bank of canada be uh, breathe a deep sigh of relief if you're a variable mortgage holder or servicing your line of credit bank's going to hold its benchmark interest rate steady at five percent even though we all know full well nobody gets five percent right that's the uh, the bank of canada's benchmark uh you want to pick up that and of course you know, there is, I think, a big conversation we had about how politicians, whether in government or opposition parties, talk about the Bank of Canada and monetary policy and inflation and bank rates or interest rates. You know, painting a picture of what's happening and the reality on the ground in your province or in the country is vastly different than pretending you're telling the bank what to do, which they get conflated sometimes. So let's take a break. When we come back, Brenda's in the queue to talk about her treatment. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Brenda, you're on the air. Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, go right ahead. Okay, perfect. Hey, I'm just calling kind of with a good news story, actually. <laughs> and I don't normally call. I called once before in my entire life. Um, I don't even listen to news or listen to this much, to be honest, but it's very good. I have to be honest. I've been listening. I have to be honest. But um, ultimately, I got a good news story. Um I got a call last night. Well, I'm, I checked my messages last night or whatnot, I, but I got the call today. I'm getting into rehab. And, I, well, I probably, like for anybody listening, um, I'm an alcoholic. Um, and I'm not ashamed to say it, and nor have I ever been. But I've been trying and trying and trying, and I'm like, it's hard, right? Um 
so I'm self-isolated. I'm more or less don't even go around many people except my cousin and her children that I love. But um, I really don't want to be around anybody. Brenda, are you still um, there? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I am. I got to decline. Sorry, this call calling. I got to decline it. Um, are you with me? I'm listening. Yeah, okay. So, anyway, I like I I don't leave the house barely. I really like, you know, anyway, the the point is I got a call today and I'm excited and I broke down crying last night when I got the voicemail and I'm very excited. I am in on October 31st and that's my girl's birthday. And her name is Hope. And I'm not talking about, like, a, a child. My child is up, like, uh, Taylor is her name. She's dead as well. But um, I'm talking about my girl that I just lost, my little chihuahua, my girl. Her birthday is October 31st, and that's the day that I'm getting in. So don't tell me there's no such thing as Hope. There is. This is good news. Good news for you, for sure, Brenda. So how long have you been, have you been trying to get a, a spot? Um, well, <laughs> I've been trying for years, but ultimately, like, really trying for a couple of months. Two months. Really trying. I've been trying for years, but, like, it just didn't really work out. But, like, intently trying for two months. Say, or longer, maybe like a little over two. So this is inpatient treatment. This is going to be in Harbor Grace. Yeah, it's going to be like I'm going. I'm leaving my house and got to get dog sitter and well, I already got him, her, I should say. Um, so it, no, I'm. It's going to be. Well, I wouldn't call it inpatient. I, I don't know what you call it really, but. Um, I am going, and I'm leaving my house for three weeks, and I'm going to their center. Yeah, that's what and I mean. You're going to be living there. It's not just come and yeah. go treatment. Yes, okay. No, no, no. Is there a detox period required before you enter formal treatment, or does that happen when you arrive? Well, that's a good question, because they asked me that. Um, ultimately, there is possibly so if you want to you could you know if you're like severe i don't know what you would really call severe but if if you think you need one go do it but i've already done that before and it's a it's a joke type deal right meaning like it's that it's useless i can do that here myself call on my little donovan like, I'm not going at it type deal, right? So, no, it's not necessary for me because maybe, I don't know. I'm, I'm just asking if it's a requirement no, because for some rehab facilities, no, you have to. it's not a requirement. Okay. It's not a requirement because I already spoke to them and I'm doing it here by myself with my dad. Um, no, but they say if you know, you think you're going to go into severe withdrawals and this and that, and this and that, go do it. But they know that I'm not. I, I already told them. I, I mean, they did ask. Like, I'll get shivers and 
uh, cold sweats and this and that. I've already done it before. So um, there's no detox required for me. Maybe it might be for somebody else. I'm not sure. I okay. really don't know. Well, listen, ultimately, I uh, wish you good luck with this uh, three-week stint in rehab. And I'm glad that it's uh, striking you as the good news that it obviously is. Appreciate the time. Really wish you well, Brenda. Thanks, Dal. I appreciate it. You take good care. You as well. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Here we go. That's uh, good for Brenda. Hopefully it sticks. Uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Betty. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Nice sunny day. It is beautiful. Uh, I'd like to send out a special hello to Tom Osmond. The Minister uh, of Health? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, all his good work. I've known Tom for quite a, quite a few years. He's my man. Uh, he's, doing, he's doing a wonderful job. Did he do something in particular for you, Betty, or is this just a general uh, thoughts did, on the minister? He did, he did years ago, right? Okay. But he's, a, he, like, he's really, really a good man. Well, I'm sure he appreciates it because I'm sure he gets way more criticism than he does, or bricks, as they say, versus bouquets. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but no, I just want to say, keep up the good work, Tam. Are you one of his constituents? Do you live in his riding? His district? No, but I uh, I did years ago, right? Okay, where are you living now? And, uh, I live in the apartment building now. My husband died in 2010, and he done favor for me, right? He he got me here, and I really appreciate for what he done. Fair enough. And how are you doing? You keeping well? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, so anyway, I want to send out a special hello to him. Tell him to take care. Keep safe. Yeah, and same with you, uh, Patty and Dave. So what are you going to do on this nice sunny day, as you pointed out at the top of our chat? Well, I am going out now this morning and just probably probably going to the mall later on. But when the sun comes out, it seems so good. It makes you feel so good, right? You looking for anything in particular at the mall or just going in for a look? Just going in for a look. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. I appreciate the time, Betty. Enjoy yeah. your day. You take care. You too. God bless. Okay, same Bye. to you. Bye-bye. Yeah, there's certainly uh, politicians are in the brick business more than the bouquet business, but so, uh, fair enough. Uh, interestingly, Tom Osborne, he's the longest-serving member of the House of Assembly in history in this province. If I'm not mistaken, he's amongst the leaders in the country. Now, you could say he's doing a good, bad job, indifferent job, whatever you see fit, but just giving you some math-related facts. Longest-serving member of the House of Assembly in Newfoundland and Labrador history post-1949. And if I remember correctly, he's amongst the league leaders in the entire country. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box. Where VOCM uh, open line, follow us there. Oh, someone did ask me why I mentioned Yom Kippur and the Yom Kippur War today. It was pretty fundamental, simply because we're watching what's going on in Israel and Gaza today. And just of note, 1973 was the end of the uh, Yom Kippur War. Uh, on this date. So that's why I brought it up. I just thought it was an interesting contrast to what we're seeing. And the lack of any talk regarding peace and long-lasting peace as we see the Israeli forces collect themselves along the Gaza border and who knows when that's going to take place, the ground action. But 
sometimes it's hard to watch all those stories because they are absolutely 100% overwhelming. Okay, let's check the email address. It's openline at vocm.com. Not surprised. People coming down on both sides of every issue. It's just how the debate rolls, right? You know, and then the thought that, you know, there's an opportunity at the bank, regardless if you have the bricks and mortar, the infrastructure in the community where you live. Easy enough to say. And I do bank online, right? I don't mind going in to see the teller every now and then if I have something in particular to get some American money or something like that. But I think Mayor Blackler in Twillingate made a point that I think is a bigger part of this conversation beyond simply the bank. If you have a small community like Twillingate and someone leaves to do their banking wherever, Gander, you know full well they're going to take advantage of some different uh, type of shopping opportunities as well. So it's more than the bank. Imagine the retail slump that might be felt in some communities because the smaller shop that is in Twillingate or is in Burgio, that business they could have done that day, that's going to be done by a bigger outfit in a bigger community where people simply went to do what? To bank. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.